remember you and um, uh, Dr. Lee and Melvin uh, Tucker and myself were at your house in Pittsburgh uh, working on the uh, Prevention of Officer Involved Deaths book. Do you recall? Oh, yeah, now I remember, yeah. Before we get into your book, I just wanted to ask you this. Bobby Kennedy and JFK were both killed, in my opinion, in the same manner, in that if you're looking at a serial killer and you're looking at a serial killer who has a MO or a modus operandi, uh, you would say that um, uh, the Kennedy assassination, Bobby and, John, and Jack, are extremely similar. Both shot uh, using the technique of uh, misdirection, uh, both in the light of day on camera in a very public event, um, almost say a terrorist attack in a way to, for the shock and awe value. Uh, are you of the opinion that, that the assassination of John and Bobby were perpetrated by the same entity? I believe they were perpetrated uh, by uh, yeah, kinds of people um, uh, with that uh, socio-political um, objective um, and uh, um, plan in mind. Yes, I do believe um, there is now uh, whether they know each other or not, uh, I, I don't know. It's hard to stress from the uh, people, you know, JFK, who would have been able to manipulate as much as they did with the people uh, just locally there at the Ambassador Hotel with Bobby Kennedy Tigator. But I do think the uh, socio-political agenda uh, was the same with the people, the same kind of mentality. Welcome to the Crime Scene Time Machine. Scott Roder is a crime scene reconstruction expert, having traveled the world investigating countless murders. You are here because you are interested in the truth. Buckle up and let's take a ride. On November 22nd, 1963, our guest was 32 years old and just getting his career in legal medicine off the ground in his hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He attained a medical degree from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in 1956, law degrees from the University of Pittsburgh in 1962, and the University of Maryland in the same year. A license, uh, license to practice law in the state of Pennsylvania, was a member of the state bar there, as well as the American Bar Association. A partner at one of the city's leading law firms, a fellow of the American Academy of Forensic Science, the president of the American College of Legal Medicine, a U.S. Air Force veteran, associate pathologist at Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama, and served as a captain in the United States Air Force medical crew. Um, and so much more, just at the age of 32 years old since then, uh, he has gone on to perform over 25,000 autopsies and over 40,000 case consultations, including famous cases like John Benny Ramsey, Sharon Tate, Anna Nicole Smith, Vincent Foster, and many more. He has authored many books and many scientific papers. Uh, our next guest is on the Mount Rushmore 
of forensic science heroes right next to Dr. Henry Lee, Dr. Edwin Lacard, and of course, Dr. Sherlock Holmes. Our guest is Dr. Cyril Weck. Cyril, thank you so much for coming on the show and having a chat with me today. Thank you for having me. It's kind of a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it is absolutely my pleasure. Um, now, uh, Dr., uh, you've authored yet another book, uh, this one called The World's Greatest Murder Mystery Regarding None Other Than the Assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I have so many questions to ask, but I'm going to ask this first question just to get it off my chest. Are the Dallas Cowboys really the one to blame here? Dallas <laughs> Cowboys. I, uh, I, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, just seriously, uh, uh, I had to throw in one little joke because this is kind of a depressing subject uh, from the standpoint of being an American citizen. Uh, and now, Dr. Mark, you've you are simply the authority on the assassination of JFK, having done your conducted your investigation for you know, 60, 59 years now. Why should people, the millennials out there, the 15-year-olds to the, to the, to the 50-year-olds, people who were born after the assassination of JFK, why should they care about this, Dr. Weck? That's a very good question. And I've just been invited by um, a gentleman who is writing a book on that. It's writing forward for it. Very important. And uh, uh, people ask me that. And people wonder, uh, including, I guess, some of my friends uh, and so on, why uh, I've continued to uh, devote so much time and effort and energy to this matter. Because when you have um, the assassination of a president, broad daylight, one of the largest cities in the country, and you have then overthrown the government, you have effectuated a coup d'etat in America. To allow that to happen, and to allow the cover-up that has continued now for almost uh, six decades is absolutely unacceptable. And it is anathema to the basic principles of our American society, our political beliefs, the foundations, upon which our country was created and and hopefully will exist for a long time. Uh, because if you allow something like that to just be forgotten, then you are not doing what is required in order to preserve the uh, basic concepts of democracy, of an honest, open society, uh, you have to realize what is involved here. The cover-up by governmental agencies, cover-up by major news media, all of them in this country. And think about that. I find that so offensive, it is difficult even for me to, to articulate it and, and not get angry. It can easily go down the rabbit hole of of, of being so sad and so, um, I guess, uh, disappointed that the American dream is really just a dream. Now, 
Dwight D. Eisenhower said, the only way to defend ourselves against tyranny by our own government is to have an supremely informed public and beware of the military industrial complex. Uh, in that famous speech, I feel, and I'm curious of your opinion, is the direct dumbing down of the American public by the distraction of the circus of what the media has become since 1963, a direct result in keeping, uh, or, or should I say not a direct result, is a direct effort by the powers that be to keep America uninformed for the reasons just like this. Well, the news media uh, obviously bought into it. I, I can't believe for one second that people uh, 59 years ago at the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and uh, the major magazines and uh, then television, NBC, CBS, ABC, that's what we had at that time, that they were all so stupid to have believed that Lee Harvey Oswald was a sole assassin in this matter. They weren't imbeciles. They reviewed everything and so on. Uh, they work closely then with the government. They really do. And uh, things have changed somewhat uh, post-Wargate, post-Vietnam War, in terms of uh, not blindly accepting and uh, swallowing um, without hesitation everything that the government tells you, uh, but it still exists. And by at that time in 1963, uh, pretty much whatever the government put out there, that was accepted. Well, and that's because there was this amazing sense of patriotism, of American pride. Of course, 1963 puts us directly in the middle of the Cold War. And for all of the young people out there, and we have many, many thousands of listeners that are under the age of 40, Dr. Weck. Um, and uh, I don't think that those people can understand the, uh, the, the effects of the Cold I still, as a young child, uh, remember the effects of the Cold War in the early 70s when I was going to school at St. Angela Marici uh, Primary, uh, that we would have drills uh, 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 for a nuclear war uh, where we would all run into the basement when we heard the nuclear bomb drill sound and put our heads between our legs and hide under desks for about 20 minutes. And we did this about once a month. Uh, I think it was around the year 1975 to 1977, something like that. People here in, in today's world, they don't know anything about that, but there was this sense of rally around our country, rally around America, rally around freedom, communism is bad, uh, to the point where um, it, it was just a fear-based patriotism. Yes, uh, you're right. And uh, while uh, Senator McCarthy took it too far to the extreme, but that kind of mentality uh, certainly uh, did exist. And uh, that's important too as we talk about the JFK assassination, because one of the things that he had set out to do um, 
acceptable to this military industrial uh, complex of mentality was a cooling down of the Cold War, a warming up of the, of the, of the Cold War, um, reaching out to, to Khrushchev and, and so on. And while I'm not suggesting there would have been, uh, you know, a, a compound mentality, ranchers and sheepmen dancing around the campfire, Let's all be friends. <laughs> it's been something significantly uh, better than what uh, we were dealing with at that time. And I'm going to save. I'm going to save this question until the end. But I want it to percolate a little bit. Is it possible that Kennedy reached out to Khrushchev because of a common fear of something? and wanted to collaborate with Khrushchev. Of course, a common fear of nuclear war. I mean, uh, but there was other common threats that possibly Kennedy was uh, talking to Khrushchev about. Well, yes, I, I think that um, they came to realize the dangers of nuclear war, and that's why the Russians backed off with Cuba following the Bay of Pigs debacle. And, uh, and remember, China was beginning to emerge then. Uh, Mao Zedong and Chiang Lai, after World War II, uh, had uh, banished uh, Chiang Kai-shek to Formosa, and now called Taiwan. And uh, they were growing to be, and had become this uh, great power, and uh, you know, arguably a greater power than us population, the size, the mentality, the work ethic, things that you can do uh, in a totalitarian society that we can't do in a uh, democracy. Um, uh, you know, it reminds me, Winston Churchill talking about government and so on, made a one of his many, many, many observations of brilliance. Um, um, democracy is a terrible form of government. The only problem is there is nothing that is uh, an acceptable alternative. <laughs> I, I agree. Uh, so I was working, uh, I just got hired recently on a, on a case in Australia, actually a couple of cases in Australia, and, uh, and I, I wasn't all that keen to this particular idea, but uh, Australia still bends a knee to the crown of England. And uh, matter of fact, in all of their legal proceedings, it's called the crown versus, you know, the defendant. And when I was preparing for uh, my reconstruction on the case, uh, I realized, well, they're not, uh, they don't have the same legal system as us. And when I worked on the Oscar Pistorius case and was in South Africa for that time in 2014, I realized that uh, the, uh, the, uh, the legal system in, in uh, South Africa is not as good as the United States. And then I work on all these cases here in America and I realize our system isn't perfect either, but it's the best one we have. By the way, I think Pistorius is up for possible uh, parole, right? Is that, uh, That's right. Yeah, he is. Uh, a matter of fact, I'm uh, planning uh, to travel back down to South Africa to uh, possibly do a face-to-face -face interview with Oscar. But anyway, let me get back to the facts and the meat and potatoes about this case. And let me throw some facts out at you, doctor. Um, uh, these are facts. 
Just after the shots rang out that day in 1963, almost 59 years ago, uh, a large group of onlookers immediately ran up towards the grassy knoll instinctively because that's where they were physically reacting from where the shots came from. Is that true? Absolutely. Yeah, so all of these people, were well, they all imbeciles, they all uh, have some auditory uh, defect uh, uh, leading to, uh, they ran toward the grassy knoll. Mm -hmm. Right, I mean, and that is human behavior. I mean, that is incontrovertible evidence that was just absolutely ignored. Before you go on to the next fact, this is a good point. Correlate that with something that most people don't even know about, and that is that one of the uh, uh, police officers riding uh, behind Kennedy's car uh, had to inadvertently left his uh, motorcycle radio leader in a position of transmitting uh, instead of just receiving. And that transmission was recorded and that transmission was subsequently studied by the foremost audio experts in the, in the country, both Baranek and Newman, and by Weiss and Kanazi, Ashkenazi, New York, and um, they both came to the same conclusion that the four shots um, definitely, and that that's from the front as well as from the rear. So correlate that with all of those hundreds of people rushing to the grassy knoll. There were other onlookers that immediately pointed toward not the fifth floor of the book depository, but the roof. And there, and there are witnesses that saw somebody on the roof of the book depository. That could not have been Oswald on the roof. No, of course not. Right. Okay, another fact. The stretcher bullet never struck Kennedy. Fact. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think the stretcher bullet is a plant. Yeah, so it... <laughs> Yeah, I and the stretcher bullet, and I got this from your section in your book called the stretcher bullet section, starting on page 46, which I absolutely loved. And it was so timely because I had just listened to a podcast with Joe Rogan. And uh, Joe Rogan uh, is an avid uh, hunter and marksman. I'm an avid uh, gun uh, uh, owner and user, primarily not for fun, but I use the guns for for my experimental science projects for uh, particularly officer-involved shooting cases, which I do very many. And I'm familiar with the modern 223 rounds and, and, and the flowering effect of these bullets and, and how they're intended to operate. And um, uh, sure, that bullet was fired, but I'm gonna argue that that bullet was fired into possibly gelatin or, or a bale of hay or, or something to that effect, because there's no way that that bullet could have passed through two bodies and be in such perfect condition. I agree completely. Um, the uh, most valued single piece of um, materials that I have in my JFK collection, one single piece, is a picture that was made by the government, incredibly, that people aren't aware of. 
I show it every time I speak. I'm sorry we can't show it while we are talking here today. Well, maybe if you send it to me in a picture, I could put it on the web page for this episode, and we could share it to everybody. All right, I'll try to do that then. Uh, they got the uh, another Mammoth de Partano, the alleged murder weapon, this piece of junk, bolt-action, non-automatic carbine, and the same ammunition, 6.5 millimeter copper jacket with lead corpus, and they fired first into cotton wiring, what would a bullet look like? It just striking nothing, just having been fired. Then they fired, and who knows how many times they did it, not just once, of course, probably dozens of times, through goat carcasses, breaking one rip of a goat mm -hmm. to see what it looked like. And then they got human cadavers, um, shit dozens of times, and fired to uh, break a radius, one of the two long bones from the elbow to the wrist. Um, both of those bones um, were broken commonly the radius and the right rib, uh, right fifth rib. Um, and that picture shows the significant deformity of a bullet that broke just the rib and a goat. The significant deformity, the classical peeling back effect of a bullet that strikes a large bone like a radius. Um, in a six foot four big bone Texan like John Conley. And then in that same picture, you have at the other end of the photo, uh, Commission Exhibit 399, um, the structure bullet, the hero of the so called bullet theory, which Mark Lane and I and others have labeled as the magic bullet theory. It is their, their own evidence. You talk about getting away with murder, mm -hmm. no, no pun intended. <laughs> they conduct an experiment, and it says out there. Now, you're telling me that an editor of the New York Times can't look at that and see, you don't have to be a forensic pathologist or a ballistic expert. There's no expertise required. Here's the picture. And that, and that right there shows the complicitness of the media buying the Warren Commission's story. Now, in preparation for this interview, I went back and I watched all of the archival footage from CBS. Uh, it's all strung together live. You can Everybody can go out there and get it on Amazon Prime. It's fantastic. Uh, and it shows all of the original news footage from Dan Rather and Walter Cronkite. Um, and, and all those people live at the scene interviewing uh, the police and, and, and just buying the story uh, from the Warren Commission hand to mouth without asking any questions. And so, of course, the media is complicit on that. But here is another question I have for you. And you may, may, may or may not feel comfortable asking it, but I'm here to ask real questions, Dr. Weck, not just pick around the edges. And both being professionals in the legal uh, world, I want to ask you this. How disappointed are you in Dr. Baden and Dr. and, and Mr. Arlen Specter in propagating this bullshit? Well, I'm very disappointed. And uh, yeah, Michael Baden uh, is a good friend and respected colleague. Uh, and uh, you know, I, every now and then, will pass on stuff to, to Dr. Baden and ask him to uh, review it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, referring to Oliver Stone as a two-hour program that was just released. Um, and in February, it'll be a four-hour documentary uh, 
in which they interview all these people and so on. You might keep that in mind. And by the way, a, a program that was picked up by countries all over Europe and Asia, but which American television refused to pick up. And finally, I think Netflix will do it February of next year. Mm. There is this condensed to our version. There's a nipple through Oliver Stone. So, oh, and by the way, just to jump in there, you actually got Oliver Stone to write the preface for this book. What a great grant. I'm, I'm, I'm just so in awe. One, in my respect for you and your career. Like I said, you're on the Mount Rushmore. And on the movie side of the world, Oliver Stone's right there with me. He got me so excited back in 2019 when he put out a, I think it was like a 16-hour documentary called, uh, and I'm just going to loosely remember it, but, but it was called something about uh, the American history they didn't teach you in school, something to that effect, the real American history. Uh, and it was such a nerd deep dive into American history starting around um, you know, uh, the Great Depression and going all the way up through the Kennedy assassination and through 9-11 and all that stuff. Uh, of course, he directed and wrote the JFK movie starring uh, Kevin Costner, which if you look back at that movie historically, he got a lot of that right, didn't he, Doctor? He sure did. You know, I was a technical consultant for two hours on that movie. I went down to New Orleans where they were filming and I'm the person that is responsible for that wonderful scene, which I have been using um, many times and was not in, had not been included in uh, his uh, presentation with Kevin Costner playing the role of New uh, Orleans Parish District Attorney from Garrison. Uh, Kevin Costner uh, then demonstrates the trajectory of the bullet, the single bullet theory, the absurd, unbelievable trajectory, the impossible uh, vertical, horizontal direction. Um, <laughs> the magic bullet, right? <laughs> we've established a warm relationship and we've been friends ever since. We've had him to Pittsburgh a couple of times for a big JFK program that we've conducted and uh, I was delighted and to be interviewed by Oliver Stone in this uh, uh, documentary that I referred to, which will be available in February. Uh, so, uh, yeah, and then forward by him is very meaningful. Oh, yes. You know, I saw uh, Oliver Stone, uh, just a real quick uh, little aside on him for all the uh, people here out there that, that need to be an aficionado on Oliver Stone movies, uh, is Oliver Stone once went to Russia and sat down for days with Vladimir Putin. Uh, he, he shared Dr. Strangelove. Uh, I, I thought that was just a magical piece of television documentary to get Vladimir Putin's reaction to Dr. Strangelove, the Stanley Kubrick film uh, about uh, nuclear war, a comedy starring Peter Sellers and, and a lot of other fantastic actors. Um, but the balls on him to sit down with Vladimir Putin and show him Dr. Strangelove, that's exactly what I would have done. What would you have asked Vladimir Putin, Dr. Weck? Well, um, that indeed was uh, very, very, um, how uh, shall I say, uh, uh, challenging, aggressive, um, uh, 
physical for Oliver Stone. But that's the kind of a guy he is. I think Oliver Stone is a great, great patriotic American. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And so are you, Dr. Weck. And it is my continued honor to be talking with you. Um, let's get back into a couple more facts on the JFK assassination. And one of the things that I think is so critical is the evidence, and I'm talking about just the objective evidence, doctor. The evidence suggests that Lee Harvey Oswald did not kill Officer J.D. Tippett in Dallas, Texas. Would you agree that there is not enough evidence to get an indictment with a grand jury against Lee Harvey Oswald in the death of J.D. Tippett? Yes, I would agree. Uh, that has always remained a puzzle to me and many of my colleagues who are Warren Commission uh, critic researchers. Uh, it's uh, very, uh, very questionable as to whether or not Oswald shot Tippett. And if he did, if he did, he did it uh, uh, in a defensive measure because he realized that Tippett, he would have realized that Tippett was there to kill him. That's uh, that where Tippett was not stationed anywhere in that area, um, and uh, he winds up driving supposedly in a very hasty fashion uh, to go and help out if he could uh, with everything that was developing following the assassination and uh, driving fast. And he, but he looks out the window and dying if he doesn't say, I'll be damned. That's, that's the guy that's going. <laughs> just got five foot nine, average build, just walking quietly down the street, uh, dressed uh, quite uh, uh, simply and so on. How did Tippett come to know that that was Oswald? So I say Oswald not have shot him, but if he did, it would set up uh, from the beginning uh, for Tippett. Uh, to have accomplished uh, what uh, was not was not achieved, namely getting rid of Oswald. And well, what about this though? In the Warren Commission's uh, investigation, they rely heavily on the testimony of a woman who uh, said she saw um, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, shoot J.D. Tippett, uh, but yet they totally ignore the, uh, what I believe to be the um, uh, 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 very specific testimony of Aquila Clemens, as you state in your book on page 52, uh, regarding uh, the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, which is another fantastic chapter, uh, that uh, Aquila Clemens saw two men involved in the murder of J Officer J.D. Tippett. One guy was short uh, and heavy, and the other guy was tall and thin, wearing khaki pants and a white shirt. Uh, and then Clemens, Clemens added that once Tippett was on the ground, the shooter waved off the other man. They left the scene in opposite directions. She told Lane she was soon visited by a man who didn't give his name but carried a handgun, and he told her, that she should not repeat her story to others, she might get hurt. 
I mean, that is mind-blowing to me, Doctor. Yes, I agree. But yet they rely on this Helen Markham to be the eyewitness of this story. Throughout the Warren Commission investigation, witnesses that were called and witnesses that were not called and other witnesses who were interrogated in a very abbreviated, sculpted fashion to get from them only that which our inspector and others wanted to have on the record. It's just unbelievable. Yeah, and we, we can go back to just simply the O.J. Simpson case uh, where our colleague, uh, Dr. Henry Lee, was able to testify that the, the, the uh, bloody glove should never have been entered into evidence uh, because it was mishandled with regard to the chain of custody as well as many other things. Now, the chain of custody in the evidence regarding the death of John F. Kennedy spoiled from the very beginning. They did not set up a perimeter. They did not clear the area. They did not secure the crime scene. They had ungloved, uneducated uh, police officers. I'm not saying police officers are uneducated, but they weren't scientists. They weren't crime scene experts. Uh, collect hold, handle, and put on public display the rifle uh, that they allegedly found so conveniently uh, 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 right next to three shell casings uh, um, in the uh, sniper's nest, allegedly on the fifth floor of the book depository, holding the weapon up for the news media without gloves. Uh, Just ridiculous. Is this before the age of modern science, Dr. Weck? I, I do believe that uh, uh, appropriate uh, scientific measures had been somewhat universal in murder cases standard throughout the United States by 1963. Why, uh, or what is your criticism or comments on the casual nature of the handling of not only the evidence of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, but the handling of the evidence of J.D. Tibbet? There were several people who had touched, manipulated the gun, the weapon, and all kinds of things in uh, the officer's squad car before police ever arrived. Uh, what, what kind of uh, uh, half-hearted, uh, uh, foolish venture was the Dallas Police Department undertaking? And that leads me to the question, are the real culprits on the ground, people that should have been arrested that day, were in fact members of the Dallas Police Department. Well, I don't know if they were members of the Dallas Police Department, but I think all the things that you have pointed out um, were accomplished by a combination of um, a lack of uh, training, a rush to judgment, and uh, manipulation by uh, superiors here and there. You put all of those together, and they accomplished what one would have thought would have been uh, impossible to achieve, and that is the cover-up, which we have talked about, that has continued for these 59 years. You had a combination of people uh, not involved, but not really doing a job, not being directed to do a proper job. Um, they brushed the judgment all the way up to including uh, J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI, who came out uh, officially on Monday, the 25th, 
unofficially already on Sunday the 24th, saying that the case was over, it had been solved, that Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole assassin. And how much would you have been able to make hay in the courtroom regarding the uh, the Mauser rifle actually even being the weapon recovered in the book depository? Because uh, my understanding is uh, very soon after they put that weapon on display, there was another weapon that was then swapped out uh, to say that, uh, no, uh, we got it wrong. It was this gun. Yeah, that's right. It was originally identified by uh, a, uh, an experienced uh, officer, as I recall. Um, what was the name? Seymour Weisberg. That's right, yeah. As, as a monitor, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So, I mean, in, a, in a courtroom, which is where you and I, you know, made our bones, right? <laughs> Particularly you. Um, I'm still trying to make my bones, doctor. Um, I'm still paying my dues as they were, testifying in court on a regular basis. Matter of fact, this year I've testified uh, eight times in in court. That's right. It's been a bit, it's been a busy year. So my question to you, since you know, yeah, everybody talks about the famous cases, the John Benet Ramseys and the Kennedys and all that stuff, but you made your bones in those twenty thousand autopsies, in those forty thousand case consults testifying in the courtroom under the color of American jurisprudence and legal, medical, uh, uh, scientific, uh, reductive sciences, reductive science, experimentalism, the backbone of, um, of the forensic science uh, development, which in no short part is uh, due to your contributions that we're sitting here at this time with our advanced forensic science, and our understanding of it uh, is in the court of law, which is where we live. Is there any way in the world that Lee Harvey Oswald could have been convicted of the assassination of John F. Kennedy? Would he? Would any prosecutor have had a chance to get a guilty conviction on him if this evidence that we know today? was able to be examined by somebody like you and then talk to a jury. What's the chances? I believe that a skilled attorney uh, like Edward Bennett Williams, who was the top guy at that time, for example, and, and others uh, whom I worked with on cases as a young man, I believe that what we have been discussing and so much more that we won't have time to get into, I hope people will be interested enough to try to uh, read about this in my uh, in my book, which is uh, available now. You can place the order directly through McFarland Publishing, or another week or so it will be available through Amazon and Barnes and & Noble. And I'm going to have a link on the website uh, for this episode where you can buy uh, Dr. Weck's book, uh, The Greatest Murder Mystery, uh, and I am going to urge everybody to buy this book. I am going to be. Is there a hard cop, uh, a hardbound copy available, Doctor? Uh, I, I don't have it yet, but uh, it'll be out there soon. Oh, I really want to get a hard copy and buy it for all of my friends in the forensic science community because I'm telling you out there, people, you need to get this book uh, because the like like Dwight D. Eisenhower said. 
um, it's about an informed public. That's how we keep this republic is by having an informed public. And here on Crime Scene Time Machine, which is so fitting that we are going back in time again to 1963 and discussing with a world-famous forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Weck, about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Dr. Weck, Ruth Payne and her husband uh, were either CIA agents or co-opted CIA operatives of some sort, uh, and they were the landlords uh, of Marina and Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, she had said under the, to the Warren Commission that she became friends with Marina because of her interest in learning Russian, but she was already fluent in Russian. Um, and she was put forward as a very prominent character uh, with regard to uh, her uh, uh, familiarity with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, uh, do you find her to just be this house mistress, just happened to, to, to be involved, or is there more to that story, Doctor? I, I, I agree with you. The CIA, you know, these, these are not people who were necessarily trained CIA operatives going back to their college or young adult days. But as you said, the work you just co-opted people who, you know, for one, one way or another, uh, either a promise of something beneficial, uh, either maybe a veiled threat, uh, either uh, an appeal to a super patriotism. Uh, and I think that's where the pains fitted in, like other people. And then they were used to tie another string around the box uh, containing the Oswald. Okay, here's another question I have for you, uh, and I want to burn through a few of these pretty fast because I want to be conscious of our time, but I have these questions, and I really, I really just really want to hear some more uh, of you giving me uh, this education, um, and here it is. On, in, on, uh, uh, at one o'clock, around one o'clock, two days uh, after uh, Kennedy was killed, uh, uh, Kennedy died uh, in operating room number one. Uh, and then two days later, at one o'clock, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was brought in after he was shot, and he was in operating room number two, as deference to uh, Mr. Kennedy being killed and, and dying just right next door. Um, the doctor that was performing life-saving measures on Lee Harvey Oswald was interrupted during this emergency surgery to take a phone call from somebody who said something very suspicious to him. Could you please tell the audience a little bit about that? I don't remember the details of that, but it is something very, very strange to uh, uh, interrupt someone <laughs> perform surgery and so on. Well, the, the important thing about this is the elimination of Oswald by uh, Jack Ruby. Uh, there's no way in the world, going back to a question that you posed a few minutes ago, uh, where if he had gone to trial, uh, would he ever have been convicted? And I think that he would not have been convicted because it didn't have a case. And what he had to say, what he would have had to say, too, about many other things, uh, and... and uh, his relationship possibly with the CIA is two and a half year 
uh, sojourn in Russia, uh, getting an honorable discharge from the Marines based on a cockamamie story about his mother's illness. Uh, there was no illness. <laughs> and, and, and during the Red Scare, Dr. Weck, is it possible that somebody could move to Russia, denounce their American citizenship, and then and then absolutely have no problem just being like, ah, I'm bored here, I think I need to go back to America, and then they're just going to stamp them, yep, come back in, no worries. That's not going to happen. No problem. I think he was given a substantial loan, married to the niece of a, of a high-ranking KGB official, a colonel, um, and uh, come back in, and it was amazing. He was never, at that time, interrogated extensively, interviewed by um, the uh, FBI and others. I went to Russia for a professional program in 72 with Henry Lee and Michael Biden. When I came back, uh, FBI agents were in my office the very next day and spent a couple of hours with me. Guess what did I see and what did I do? Right. No one. And so to think that Oswald, over there for almost two and a half years, married to the niece of a high-ranking official, uh, and they weren't interested in talking with him and getting a complete debriefing. Oh, my God. The more you think about base and all the ramifications that the... The, the tentacles uh, from this stinking, decomposing body of the Warren Commission, um, the more disgusted and angry you become. Yeah, let, me, let me jump on this, and I'm, maybe this will refresh your recollection. Um, it, Dr. Crenshaw was doing the surgery on Lee Harvey Oswald, and, he, uh, and this is what you have in the book on page uh, 102. Oswald's... Uh, uh, when the pulse slowed, Perry made another scalpel incision, and this time exposing the patient's heart. The doctor who attempted in vain to massage President Kennedy's heart back to life was now performing the same task on JFK's alleged killer, but nothing worked. Not ventricular defibrillation, nor drugs injected um, uh, uh, right into the heart, unable to revive or save the now cyanotic Oswald was pronounced dead at 1.07 p.m. But prior to the, his actually dying, uh, the doctor received a phone call. He identified himself and heard the caller's deep Texas accent. This is President Lyndon B. Johnson, Dr. Crenshaw. How is the accused? He told the president uh, that Oswald was holding his own at the moment, but that his condition was uh, very serious. President Johnson commanded Dr. Crenshaw to give the lead surgeons an order that there should be a deathbed confession from Oswald that witnesses in the room would hear. Crenshaw went back into the surgical arena and delivered the word, Oswald died, there would be no deathbed confession. Is it appropriate for the vice president and the now president of the United States to interfere with a surgery to demand a deathbed confession? What is going on with this, doctor? Absolutely incredulous, absolutely unbelievable. Um, you know, this is something that not many people know about or have ever heard about. Thank you for mentioning it. Yes, I, it blew, I literally, when I read this in your book, I jumped out of my chair and I just couldn't believe that that could be true. 
but it makes a whole lot of sense. Um, how would that play in a courtroom? Oh, it would be disgusting. I came to know Dr. Crenshaw. We developed a nice friendship. We're some programs together at a couple of different places. And that he always, always made it clear that uh, he uh, did not believe in the Warren Commission report. Okay, I have a couple of more questions for you here uh, that I want to really get in. Um, do you have any comments on Houston Congressman Albert Thomas and his behavior with Lyndon B. Johnson on Air Force One when he's being sworn in as president, standing next to the newly widowed Jacqueline Kennedy? The wink photograph. You can interpret that in different ways. Remember that, I mean, you, you say that it doesn't just show that uh, he was involved and uh, well, we did it, so to speak, and so on. But keep in mind, Johnson was a pretty crude individual. Uh, he was an incredible politician, but he was a pretty crude individual. He'd go into the bathroom. Yeah, crude and rude, yeah. And have a bowel movement with the open door and people mm -hmm. out here, the president of the United States sitting there defecating. Yeah. Uh, so, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's an interesting observation. Um, okay, um, let's get back into some more factual type stuff. Yeah. Here's a fact. Um, in 1947, Fred Chrisman uh, is a CIA agent involved in the recovery of an alleged UFO at Maury Island by the Puget Sound. Fred Chrisman turns up in 1963, as being one of the alleged hobos arrested as suspects in the shooting by the Dallas Police Department of John F. Kennedy. What's going on there? Incredible. Yeah, those uh, three hobos with the uh, well shot news um, and uh, never, never taken in, interrogated, and so what were they doing? Where were they coming from? Oh, my so much there. So uh, every, every string that you can pull on this case creates 20 more strings. Yeah, well, who, who, who could have pulled a string out of it? It takes us back to the very beginning of our discussion, and that is, could only have been accomplished by uh, high-level officials um, uh, currently active or recently retired a military to have accomplished all of that. Think of what that would have needed to be done. A phone call here, a message there. Uh, uh, nobody could have accomplished that except people uh, in those ranks. And then also Guy Bannister was involved in the Murray Lake incident in 1947 as well. And Guy Bannister, as we learned from Oliver Stone and from you, uh, was a handler of Lee Harvey Oswald out of New Orleans. Yeah, that's right. Um, where Oswald was supposedly distributing a fair fight for Cuban literature and an address uh, that was inhabited by Guy Bannister and his uh, people and so on. Yeah, oh my God, there's, there's so much here, Scott. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, two more questions for you, Doctor. Uh, I'm going to save my best question for last. 
because we are at about 57 minutes and I, I promise to get you off here in an hour, although I could talk to you all day because I just enjoy this. I'm so exhilarated and energized by your knowledge, by your organization, by your story career. Um, it's such an honor. Um, all right, Dr. Weck, there are, are there any details in your investigation since uh, the release in 2017 uh, of additional uh, top secret declassified, uh, but yet still redacted material put out? Uh, one of the pieces, one of the documents that I've found in my uh, investigation that uh, I find is extremely important is a, a memo called or now called the burn memo where uh, the CIA or the FBI uh, writes a memo uh, saying Lancer, which is the CIA, which is the Secret Service name for John F. Kennedy, Lancer is in, is inquiring uh, into our activities. This cannot be allowed. Uh, and it uh, is basically saying Kennedy's looking into our stuff. We can't allow this, and the memo is burned. Uh, it looks like it's a burned piece of paper. That's why it's called the burn memo. Do you do you did that memo or any other information that came out in 2017? Uh, uh, did that help or augment your investigation? And then the follow up to that is, oh, go ahead, go ahead and answer that one first. with a statement that Kennedy made to Senator Mike Mansfield following the Bay of Pigs debacle where he tore up a piece of paper uh, into many, many pieces, threw it into the air, and said, this is what I intend to do to the CIA. Keep that in mind. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, and then, of course, Kennedy's speech that might have gotten him killed, uh, some people theorize, is the speech where he talks about um, there is no room in America for secret societies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay, so here's, uh, and I don't want to get too much into that, but here's my final question for you, Doctor. Where is John F. Kennedy's brain? I do not know. It has never been accounted for. Thank you for mentioning this. I was the one to release to the public that the brain was missing, that it had not it had been placed in formalin, a fix of the solution uh, properly after the autopsy and uh, went back uh, two weeks later uh, the pathologist who did the autopsy these two were comedians who had no experience in forensic pathology who had never done a gunshot autopsy they went back and they could see it in the report serial sections of the brain are not made in order to preserve the specimen preserve the specimen by whom? Jackie Kennedy's mantelpiece yeah very thank you for touching upon that. And that was in August 24, 1972, page one story, New York Times, written by Fred Graham, President's Brain Missing. And it remains unaccounted for, and while some of the Warren Commission defenders and sycophants try to tell you, well, the Kennedys took it, they buried it. There is no documentation, no reference, no suggestion of that at all, that the Kennedys ever took the brain. And isn't it a fact that if we had the brain to be examined by you, uh, uh, that that would definitively prove beyond any reasonable scientific doubt 
that the bullets came from the front. Absolutely. That's why I went missing. That's why I went missing. Um, and now, my final... Uh, thought, and I'd love you to, to comment on this, is they killed the man in JFK, but they killed the idea when they killed Bobby. Are we living in a different America now in, yes. than we were before the Kennedys were killed, Dr. Weck? I, I, I strongly believe that the assassinations of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Dr. Martin Luther King um, move this country and the world into a different direction. And I strongly believe, and have not anybody ever prove it, but if those people have remained alive and continue to espouse what they believe, with the followings that they had um, uh, politically with the Kennedys and uh, in a broader sense uh, with King and so on, that we were kind of have a different world today. Um, but and that's why they were eliminated, because that kind of world was not acceptable to the super patriots who believed that America was going to hell in a basket, and uh, they weren't going to sit back and let that happen. And 13 more years of the Kennedy, five of uh, Jack, uh, uh, eight years of Bobby Kennedy, they weren't going to let that happen. Well, Scott, I thank you very much. Marvelous interview. Uh, you're so well read. And um, um, let's keep in touch. Absolutely. And, and, and Dr. Weck, I, I just want to thank you one more time for being here with me. And I would love to invite you back on at some point in the near future so that we can discuss the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. Okay. All right. We'll do the rest of the time. Okay. Thank you so much, Doctor. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. All right. Be well. Okay, folks, that was a wonderful interview uh, with Dr. Cyril Weck, forensic pathologist, one of the most uh, famous uh, scientists in American history, uh, my colleague, uh, and uh, uh, what a wonderful guest. So uh, I hope you enjoy that, folks. Uh, go to the Crime Scene Time Machine uh, webpage and you'll get all the links and photographs of the things that we were talking about uh, here today. You'll get a link on how you can buy Dr. Weck's book and uh, uh, look at some other fun things and stuff. Okay, guys. Whew. That was fun. Um, until next time, I'm Scott Roeder, and I love you, America. Shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas.
The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. on November 21st, 2020. Welcome to the Evidence Room Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Roeder. And today we're going to be talking about the JFK assassination. And joining me today is my friend and trusted colleague, Mr. Jay Thomas, coming from the Evidence Room in New Haven, Connecticut. Welcome to the show, Jay. Hey, how's it going, Scott? Thanks for having me. Oh, you know, I was dying to have you on the podcast for a very special episode. As you know, tomorrow is November 22nd, and that's, uh, you know, not exactly a, a landmark anniversary, but it's an anniversary of, of a very important day in American history. Absolutely. I, I think that a lot of people, uh, even our age, <laughs> Know, uh, know that date, and uh, it's a sad date, but it's still a date that kind of stays with you. It is really, you know, an incredible thing to me, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, even to this day, 57 years later, is still kind of shrouded in disinformation. And in preparation for this podcast today, I did some research, watched some documentaries, read some articles. Uh, and, uh, I, have learned so much about Cuba, Fidel Castro, John F. Kennedy, Lee Harvey Oswald and all this stuff. Uh, and I just felt like it was just important to readdress the issues. You know, I'm a Gen Xer. I was born in 1970. Um, and you know, I think even for my generation, you know, JFK and his assassination, you know, I think we just everybody accepted the Warren Commission's general prevailing theory. If you're not a you know a, a, a historian, that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gunman and killed John F. Kennedy. Isn't that generally what the government's opinion still is today? I think so, and it's ironic because uh, you know even even now, believe it or not, in, in doing my own research on this, uh, President Trump was given an opportunity to clear some of the documentation because that was one of the things that he had said. You know, he's going to clean up all these conspiracies, et cetera. And ironically, even with all of his rhetoric, he still held on to some 3,000 documents 60 years later, which leads me to believe that there's a lot of stuff out there that people don't know about still. I would agree with you. You know, I watched the um, documentary, well, not documentary, the, the movie JFK by one of my favorite 
American filmmakers and what I would call American historians, Oliver Stone. And in the closing argument made by um, uh, Kevin Costner's character at the end during the jury trial of Clay Shaw, he says, I'm marking the calendar for the year 2032 because that's when the U.S. government will officially declassify documents related to the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And I thought that was fascinating. So we're now in the year 2020. So you and I will live to the day when these documents will be forced by the archive, government, whatever, you know, that rules that thing to declassify all that. So let's see, I'm 50 now. So I'll be 62 years old when that stuff gets declassified. I can't wait for it, honestly. I have my own theory, though, and I'm sure you have your own theory, but let's dive right into it, Jay. Um, I think to, for the kids today to understand, and when I say kids, I mean people between the age of, say, I don't know, t- 10 years old that might be listening to this podcast, all the way up to, um, you know, maybe 30. They might not you know, grew up, grown up with the pop culture of the Kennedy assassination that's kind of revolved around it. It's been kind of made fun of, taken lightly to the point where, you know, even on Seinfeld, there's a famous episode uh, where somebody spits gum at Keith Hernandez walking into a Mets baseball game and it goes back and to the left. Remember that that hilarious scene where Kramer gets hit in the head with the gum or (laughs) the spit? Um, but, but it's a serious matter. Um, and I think it, it has a direct relationship to what's going on in today's world, you know, with the transition between the Biden presidency and the Trump presidency. Kennedy was in a very similar situation. And just a quick setup, and I'm going to let you take over because I know you got a lot to say on the subject. So Eisenhower had hatched a plan in kind of the lame duck session of his presidency to invade Cuba through kind of a CIA proxy war where they um, uh, enlisted and trained 1,334 Cuban dissidents who were pissed off, for lack of better words, for losing all their wealth and power that they had under President Bautista, a friend of the United States, when Castro came to power um, in 1959. And uh, the United States wanted to have their own person that they could control as the president of Cuba again, not Fidel Castro, who at the time was not even a communist. So Kennedy wasn't briefed by Nixon because when Nixon's running for president, he was so confident he was going to win. He didn't brief John F. Kennedy or the government didn't brief John F. Kennedy, the president elect potentially of any of the security situations going on in the world. So as a result, when Kennedy won, it was kind of a surprise and Kennedy had no idea that the government was planning to invade Cuba. And that's kind of one of the inherent risks of not cooperating with an incoming president-elect during the transition period, which I kind of feel like maybe there's some bullshit brewing in our country right now. I don't want to get political. Uh, I think that's about as much as I'll go with, with the politics part of it. But it's hard to avoid politics when talking about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. I think that uh, I think that it's interesting, you know, that politics, although they change, they don't really change, if that makes any sense. I mean, if you look through history, look through assassination attempts or, you know, successes, 
you know, look at, you know, the Lincoln assassination. I mean, that was like a conspiracy on a whole other level that people don't really talk about. You know, the Lincoln was supposed to be assassinated, but so was the uh, vice president and the uh, majority house leader. You know, they, you don't really hear about that in history just because it's like a side note because it wasn't successful. But when you think about it, I mean, you know, whenever there's an attempt, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of insane. You know, it, it's like one of those things where a lot of people get together and pull it off. You know, that you look at, uh, say, John Hinckley, uh, you know, he tries to assassinate Reagan, doesn't really get away with it, doesn't even uh, succeed. Uh, you know, you look at Oswald and he had a lot of the same characteristics as Hinckley, but uh, he managed to pull it off. It just seems very unlikely that a, a madman or a, just a wingnut, basically, was able to succeed at something like that. Without being so, assisted by someone. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally did. dig it. I mean, but did Lee Harvey Oswald have something to do with it? Probably. He probably did. And, you know, I want to rely upon my area of expertise to evaluate this. Now, we can talk, you know, for a while about the politics of it. But just for a second, let's get into the, and we're going to get back to the politics because I have a lot more to say and talk to you about on this, but let's look at the the actual assassination itself, and I think it's very simple uh, when you break it down. And in preparation for this podcast, I created a little video. I went out yesterday with one of my other colleagues, Patrick Mooney, um, Patrick Kyle Mooney, Kyle, Patrick Kyle Mooney. Um, he, he's also uh, one of my colleagues here at the Evidence Room. And um, he's a, a shooting aficionado, as I am. And we took a, a triple action bolt rifle out to my sister's farm. Uh, shout out to my sister, Kim. And we did an experimentation. I posted that experimentation on the Evidence Room YouTube page. So I encourage everybody, pause the podcast, go over to YouTube, type in Evidence Room YouTube page. And then look for the JFK video. It's about two minutes and 50 seconds long. And it's my kind of, you know, real fast attempt at uh, reconstructing what I think are critical elements of the shooting scene reconstruction um, that really, I think, proves beyond any reasonable scientific doubt that there had to be more than one shooter that day at 1230 in the afternoon. Beautiful sunny day in Dallas, Texas, November the 22nd, 1963. Now, there's no doubt that John F. Kennedy was shot from behind, as evidenced in frame uh, 301 of the Zapruder film, 301 to 306, something like that. Because you can see Kennedy raise his arms as if to protect his neck because a bullet just hit him. And then you could see Connolly in front of him turn around and also react as if he was shot. Uh, and then on frame 313, matter of fact, there's a famous documentary called 313, and it's about frame 313 of the Zapruder film. And uh, it clearly shows that John F. Kennedy was shot from the front right side of his head. He has an entrance wound. A big piece of his skull fractures. And you see this plume of red blood. And then you see his head go back and to the left. Now, as 
a shooting scene reconstruction expert like myself, that's pretty easy to digest because I've been reconstructing homicides, particularly by gunfire, for 25 years now, testifying in courts all across this great land of ours and in many foreign countries. I'm no stranger to this. So to me, I look at it, I'm like, how can the Warren Commission say that there was a lone gunman? The scientific evidence alone proves beyond any reasonable doubt that there had to be at least two shooters. Would you agree with me, Jay? Absolutely. And, you know, to further the opinion, I mean, you know, that even the Warren Commission had analyzed some of that audio to say, hey, you know, there is a potential of up to six shots that they captured with some of this audio. And so, you know, it, it finally boils down to a, a story that certain players decided to get together and, and formulate to, to say, hey, don't believe what your eyes see. Don't believe what your ears see or hear. You know, believe what I'm telling you. And unfortunately, the American people, after being told the same story over and over and over again, finally started to digest it and believe it. So are you saying that disinformation works, Jay? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I think it's a famous quote from Napoleon. Uh, he said, um, history is just a story that a bunch of people get together and believe that's what happened. Not necessarily the facts, but just a version of the facts. I'm going to do you up one better and say uh, a quote from uh, Winston Churchill. And he said, history is written by the winners. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, that's true. Um, now, we can't talk about the JFK assassination without talking about Cuba. And... I'll be honest with you, I didn't really know all that much about Cuba's history. And um, it all started in 1492 when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue. <laughs> uh, you know, he landed in the America, apparently, but no, he landed in Cuba. That's where Christopher Columbus landed, in Cuba. And ever since 1492, the Cuban people have been enslaved. And then starting in 1850-ish, Cuba was in a period of an 80-year period of absolute revolution after coup d'etat, after revolution, after coup d'etat, after revolution, again and again and again. These people have been... Uh, through, I think, uh, of any country, I mean, especially a country that's 90 miles off our southern coast, uh, could ever, you know, uh, imagine that kind of turmoil. Uh, matter of fact, uh, you know, if you look back uh, during the most normalized uh, relationship between the United States and Cuba, it, it goes back into the Great Depression era, uh, during the era of prohibition. Um, guys like Meyer Lansky, Lucky Luciano, um, uh, Ernest Hemingway spent a lot of their time in Cuba. Matter of fact, Ernest Hemingway's book, The Old Man in the Sea, was written in Cuba based on Ernest Hemingway's experience of living amongst the Cuban fishermen. And Cuba was universally regarded as a vacation paradise destination and really remained that way up until 
Castro's Revolution of 1959. And Castro really fucked up the relationship for the United States when he overthrew Batista. This is actually shown, if you remember, I don't know if you're a fan of uh, The Godfather, Jay. Of course, that was that. That was you know that was the extent of the knowledge that I had of the Cuban Revolution. At first, was that scene in The Godfather, where Michael Corleone and uh, uh, Fredo, yeah, they're trying to negotiate the uh, the casino deals, and then Batista is thrown out of power, and everybody scrambles. I mean, that was that was such a pivotal scene, not only in The Godfather, but kind of like in Cuba's history, which is ironic because. You know, it was one of those things where it was just like, holy cow, you know, overnight, revolutionaries came in and flipped the table and said, you know what, we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to do something entirely different. And so it was just one of those things where it was like, huh, that's kind of interesting as a side note. And then you just kind of move on. But I think you're right. I think the Cuban history is one that is fraught with, uh, with you know, turmoil and abuse and you know, people just trying to get what they can get out of the, the poor Cuban people, honestly. Um, and, but, you know, and, and that was on uh, uh, New Year's Eve 1959 was the revolution when Castro officially uh, took power. Uh, and, and that was also the same time Kennedy was becoming president of the United States. So pretty incredible kind of circumstance. So Kennedy and Castro came to power essentially almost at the exact time. And when Castro came to power, it was the revolution to end all revolutions. And still today is the last revolution in Cuba. Um, And uh, that really started an escalation in tensions uh, because of course, the failed Bay of Pigs disaster. And by any, you know, assessment, Cuba won the Bay of Pigs, as uh, President Trump likes to say, bigly, big league. <laughs> won big league, big time. Cuba kicked the ass of these dissidents. Now, Cuba lost some people, too. They lost 4,000 people. Uh, but they were able to capture and or kill all of the Brigade 2506. And then later, sell them back. Kennedy for $53 million, thereby cementing Castro's uh, power and his influence uh, to the point where Castro then goes to the Soviet Union uh, and is treated as a hero. He's given a baby bear, which is really cute, and um, comes back to Cuba, uh, really that cemented his reign for life in Cuba, but that didn't end there. Um, the CIA and through John F. Ken- John F. Kennedy after this event was obsessed with killing Fidel Castro. According to what I've researched, John F. Kennedy and the CIA attempted to assassinate Fidel Castro over 70 times through, uh, Mafia hits to the point where the CIA paid the mafia $5 million to go into Cuba and kill Castro. Mafia, of course, did what the mafia does. They took the money and they didn't even try to kill Castro. Um, They enlisted the help of one of Castro's ex-girlfriends who was living in New York City at the time to go over to Cuba, 
with poison pills with cyanide in them and go up to Castro because he was living at the hotel in Nacion, uh, Hilton and under heavy guard. And, uh, and this was like 1961, early 1962. And she went up there and she hid the, 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 the cyanide pills uh, in like her Pond's makeup cream. And um, she started crying and Castro said, are you here to kill me? And she said, yes. And uh, she dumped the cyanide pills down the toilet. And Castro said, well, then kill me. And he takes out his gun and he gives it to her and says, kill me. And she said, I can't. I love you. And then Castro made love to her. They ate food. And she left. So Castro was fucking the United States effort to kill him literally over and over and over and over again. And the Bay of Figs was just the first victory in a long line of Castro victories. So, um, it, you know, one, and then there was a speech that Castro gave on the radio because he was a master of media. And he said, uh, listen, um, the United States has tried to kill me. I'm paraphrasing. The United States has tried to kill me many, many times. And then Castro warned Kennedy that it goes both ways. And that was in late 1962. At the same time, the United States signed an embargo, basically isolating Castro from everybody in the entire world with the exception of Rafa. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that uh, some of those papers that just got released by the CIA had talked about how they dusted his clothes with bacteria. Um, the exploding cigar story that a lot of people have heard is a real story. Um, they tried to make his hair fall out, uh, his beard oh, hair fall wait, out. Wait, wait, wait. The exploding cigar story? I think I saw that on Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck. Yeah, no, that's that's an honest-to-God real story that came out in some of the CIA documentation that they they actually tried to slip him an exploding cigar, which is insane. Um, they tried uh, putting arsenic on the mouthpiece of the cigars. That didn't work. Uh, I guess the bacteria was supposed to make him lame, like uh, take him to a point of almost dying, but not quite dying, because they weren't sure at one point if they wanted him dead or if they just wanted to illegitimatize him, make him seem really weak. At one point, they had put out contracts on all of his leaders, but purposely said, if you kill Castro, it's worth two cents. Because they wanted to incense him into a, you know, a, a rage, just to kind of goad him into doing something stupid. Because, you know, and nothing else was working. They'd poke at him, and he'd do nothing, and they'd try and kill him, and it wouldn't work. And so, they were trying all these different angles, trying to get him either upset, or just to get the people themselves to kind of overthrow him. You know, they they tried to starve the uh, the Cuban people out too, to try and get them to revolt against. Uh, Castro, which is horrible if you think about it. You know, you're torturing millions of people because you don't like their leader. So, yeah, and uh, I wanted to read a few quotes about what the world leaders at the time were saying about the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Right. Um, so let's uh, go with uh, Robert Kennedy. Okay, Robert Kennedy said, "There's so much bitterness. I thought they would get one of us, but Jack." After all, he'd been through, never worried about it. And this was an interview that RFK gave on the afternoon that JFK was assassinated. Um, Edward Kennedy, senator and brother of JFK, says, there has to be more to it. 
when being asked about did Lee Harvey Oswald assassinate him, Lyndon Johnson said, I'll tell you something about Kennedy's murder that will rock you. Kennedy was trying to get Castro, but Castro got him first. Uh, he'd have us to believe, wouldn't it? Now, I think that the evidence might support the idea that John F. Kennedy was perceived as being soft on communism. Um, and he needed to be eliminated. And if you think about who was assassinated after JFK, MLK, RFK, Malcolm X, all considered to be either communist sympathetic or communist uh, neutral, you know, uh, by the CIA and the FBI and J. Fucking Edgar Hoover. Um, a couple more quotes um, by Ken O'Donnell, former special assistant to JFK. Quote, I told the FBI that I heard two shots coming from behind the grassy knoll fence, but they said it couldn't have happened that way, and I must have been imagining things. So I testified the way they wanted me to. I just didn't want to stir up any more pain or trouble for the Kennedy family. And this guy was um, uh, went on to become uh, assistant to uh, Tip O'Neill. Okay, this is not uh, a fly by night guy. Uh, Nicholas Katzenbach, former assistant attorney general, said, my own feeling was that Bobby was worried that there might be some conspiracy and that it might be his fault. It might very well have been that he was worried that the investigation would somehow point back to him. I'm not as certain as one could be that there was no other gunshot, but it's silliness to speculate that somebody was behind Oswald. I'd almost bet on the anti-Castro Cubans. So even at the time, these are quotes from 1963 in the very, um, uh, uh, the near after uh, 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 history. Dick Goodwin, former deputy assistant secretary of state, said, we know the CIA was involved and the mafia. We all know that. And if you think about motives, which any good crime scene investigator would think about, think about who benefited or who had motive to kill John F. Kennedy. Let's look at, say, the most obvious, um, Fidel Castro, right? Um, he had been, Kennedy had tried to overthrow him in part, uh, but his administration tried to assassinate him Dozens and dozens of times. They said 75 times almost attempted assassination. So Castro had much uh, reason to revenge, right? Um, matter of fact, on November 20 and November 21, 1963, 24 and 48 hours before Kennedy's assassination, Kennedy had sent French journalist who was set to meet with Castro to Cuba. To interview Castro, and he was there and testifies uh, in this documentary I saw of Cuba Libre that Castro picked up the phone, heard the news that Kennedy was shot, and said, "Oh, this is serious. They're going to blame me." Uh, 
So that's Castro. One of the other uh, uh, main suspects would be the Mafia. Because the Mafia, during the uh, Prohibition period, uh, considered Cuba to be their El Dorado, their city of gold, headed up by Meyer Lansky. Yeah, you know, honestly, too, the the mafia angle, uh, it's kind of interesting because in doing some of this research, I found out that, you know, Joe Kennedy had some very shady dealings with a lot of different people, including the mafia. And it was believed at one time that Joe Kennedy had reached out to certain mafia officials to get his son elected to, I think it was the Senate seat or possibly even the presidency. And I think that the mafia felt cheated. I think that they put this guy into some form of power, and then all of a sudden, not only is he trying to do away with their own organization, but Robert Kennedy is also making moves trying to get rid of the mafia. And so, at one point, the Chicago, the New Orleans, and the uh, Miami trying to take credit for the assassination. So it's it's interesting that you bring up the mafia because I think that there are a lot of different areas that that the mafia kind of rings true. You know, it's it's a, an organization. I think that uh, obviously they're shady already, and you know they've got the ties to make it happen. And there's a great quote by, excuse me, pause. All right, I'm going to cut that out. One, two, three. There's a great quote by Meyer Lansky, who said, "We're not leaders of the underworld. We're leaders of the overworld, demonstrating how much power." That the mafia had during that time period. Matter of fact, the United States government enlisted the help of the mafia during World War II, where they actually let Lucky Luciano out of prison, where he was sentenced to life for murder, because he was able to convince the La Cosa Nostra members who controlled the docks in New York City to watch out for Nazi spies coming in as Italian immigrants during World War II. And uh, the government made good on their promise and uh, let him get out of jail. For, and uh, he ended up fleeing to where? Cuba! Where he attempted to, you know, implement all of the gambling and, you know, turning Cuba essentially into Las Vegas. So, considering Cuba was the mafia's El Dorado, uh, and Castro being in power prevents that El Dorado from happening. And by Kennedy totally failing at the Bay of Pigs by not providing air cover, and instead of landing in Trinidad, they land in the Bay of Pigs, which was so stupid because landing in the Bay of Pigs, they the boats that they came in on from Nicaragua actually ended up being a shipwreck because... They didn't realize that in the Bay of Pigs, the bay in the shallow water was protected by coral reef. Whereas in Trinidad, they could have just parked the boats with the flat bottoms right on a beachhead. But they landed in the Bay of Pigs. And they didn't realize that all the shallow water was protected by coral reef. So these guys, the Brigade 2506, had to walk through 200 yards of shallow water protected by coral reef. And I don't know if you've ever been to like Hawaii or Mexico or any area where there's like really thick coral reef. You can't walk on it. It rips you to shreds. Imagine what that was doing to these guys. 
uh, in the brigade trying to, you know, keep their rifles dry and walk over this jagged core, you know, so it was doomed from the beginning. So, of course, the CIA, who coordinated that overthrow, I'm sure they were fucking pissed off that they failed. So they had, you know, because their goal was to eradicate communism, right? The CIA, the military, they were just afraid of communism. And Kennedy even said through his French journalist, just a day before he was killed, that he didn't care that Cuba was aligned with the Soviet Union. Of course, he was not a communist himself, but he had nothing against the communist people. He just didn't want to have war. And that was further evidence of how soft, allegedly, he was on Cuba. And um, so I think the CIA and other people uh, who, you know, I mean, think about it. That period of time, there was a purging in Hollywood of, uh, you know, the guys like uh, Truman Capote and all these Hollywood writers who were members of the Communist Party who made all the great movies in the 50s and the 60s who were arrested and put in jail for suspected of being communists. This is a time when, um, you know, McCarthyism was running wild. Uh, people were being accused of being commies, the Red Scare. I mean, this even filtrated into Bugs Bunny cartoons and, you know, the propaganda machine about how bad the communists were. And listen, I'm no fucking communist. But um, I'm saying that um, there was a reason for these anti-communists to want people like JFK, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X. There's a reason they wanted them dead. Because they were a threat in their fight against communism. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that, uh, you know, especially nowadays, people that are kind of in their 20s and 30s, they grew up in a culture which was very accepting of alternate ideas. You know, they didn't believe necessarily in communism or other religions or what have you. But it was never one of those things where I'm going to punch you in the face because I don't like the fact that you're communist. You know, back in the 50s, you know, uh, if you were red, you were dead. That was one of the phrases that they, they had uttered over and over again. You know, if, if you were an American, that was your religion. You know, you, you fought very hard to be American, to keep America, keep America great, to use a, 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 <laughs> a recent motto. And, uh, you know, back in the sixties, if they thought that, uh, the United States was in danger of, you know, being overthrown by communists, to your point, I think that, you know, people had a tendency to take physical action against stuff like that. You know, I wouldn't put it past a lot of people in that time and era to say, you know what, fuck this. I'm going to go and I'm going to make sure that our our great nation stays safe. And so if that means that the president's got to go, then he's got to go. And, you know, when you look back at all of those political leaders, you know, in the in a span of a few years, if you think about it, how many of those political leaders were assassinated all coincidentally by lone gunmen? kind of a strange thing to think about oh yeah you know mlk he was shot to death by some lone gunman up oh, jfk he got shot by some lone gunman up oh, malcolm x some lone gunman you know rfk some lone lone gunman i mean you know you're not going to change your strategy if it keeps working for you so and think you know, about think it just to go on to that point oswald was killed by a lone gunman by jeff yep. an admitted mafia uh member uh killed lee harvey oswald now, you know, the Red Scare didn't end there, Jay. I, uh, I think the Red Scare continued all up even into my lifetime, into the mid-80s, as evidenced by one of my favorite 
Red Scare movies of all time. And I'll give you a quote. Gotta let it turn. Gotta let it turn. Let it turn into something else. Wolverine! <laughs> Red Dawn, baby. Yeah, man. Soviet Union and Cuba invade the United States. What a propaganda movie. Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, uh, you know, the Russian military and the Cuban military invade the United States and a group of Michigan football players defend our great nation. Kind of like what Michigan is doing right now. <laughs> from threats, foreign and domestic, folks. Domestic terrorists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Don. Uh, that was like mid '80s, man. Like right, right around the same time that Breakfast Club came out. You know, like um, yeah, it was the war alternative to a John Hughes movie. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And uh, by the way, I love John Hughes. Pretty in Pink, all that stuff. Yeah, beautiful stuff. Um, uh, it's funny. I, I think uh, Raúl Castro kind of looks a little bit like John Hughes. <laughs> I would have, <laughs> have a little mustache. Um, no offense to either Raul or John, <laughs> whatever you guys can work it out amongst yourselves. It's just a pencil thin mustache, man. I don't get it. Like, what's up with that? Um, <laughs> but I think to summarize this, um, uh, what did what did Leah Harvey Oswald say? I'm just a patsy. Now he probably was involved. Maybe he did take a shot or two or three. But as we know, in a sniper situation, that first shot's going to be most accurate, and that was from 240 feet away. And in frame 313, which I will, again, refer you back to the Evidence Room uh, YouTube page, the JFK assassination video, I think I pretty clearly demonstrate that the shot came from the front that ultimately killed Kennedy. What do you, did you see that? Did you watch that video, Jay? What did you think about that? I did. I, I thought it was a fantastic video, actually. And I was going to ask you, how many shots did it take you to get it right? Because, uh, you know, obviously you edit it down for time. but um, you nailed it exactly in the position that it needed to be hit at. But somehow I doubt, you know, with a World War II era Italian rifle, you nailed that <laughs> at a couple hundred yards right off the bat, unless you've got some sort of secret talent you're not telling me about. Uh, no, I missed several times, and uh, but ultimately hit the shot. Um, uh, you know, I, I really enjoyed doing it. Uh, you know, Pat Mooney... Um, uh, is a much better shot than I am. And him and I have, you know, had bets over the years on shooting scenes that we've done. Um, uh, uh, matter of fact, there's this one famous case I did, uh, the, the defense of Molly uh, uh, McKernan as uh, shown on the um, uh, 48 Hours Evidence Room uh, episode, which you can find on cbs.com. Uh, you can look up the evidence room episode and then see what I'm talking about. Uh, and where I, I bet Pat, I'm like, Hey Pat, I bet you I can get off uh, 10 shots in, uh, under three seconds. And I got off in 2.66 seconds. And then of course, Pat and I were there yesterday and, uh, I'm like, Pat, let's see what you can do. I let him do it first. First shot, uh, nicks it, just misses it. You know, second shot. But then I said, okay, do it three in a row as fast as you can. He hits it on the first shot. And misses wildly on shots two and three. And it doesn't take him six seconds. It takes him 17 seconds. Yeah. Right? So in a sniper situation with a triple bolt action. Now, this isn't freaking Call of Duty, folks. This is real life. 240 yards away at a moving target, your first shot is going to be your best shot. Because that's where you're stationary. 
You've already got the gun locked and loaded, and bow! That's your best shot. Second shot is going to be wildly different. Your target's moving. You've got to do three bolt action. Click, click, eject, reload down, re-aim through your scope, fire. And then again, it's just impossible to get that off in six seconds. As a matter of fact, I think you mentioned you saw a CBS documentary where they had the world's best marksmen try it. Yeah, they had uh, they had ten marksmen line up and tried to do the exact same thing with the exact same rifle, same ammunition, where they set up a, a tower and a uh, a cart with a, a diagram, just trying to make those shots. And only two of them were able to do it in the time and hit the target twice. So two out of ten of the best marksmen in the world managed to make the shots. The other eight couldn't do it, and even the shots themselves, they weren't kill shots. They just happen to hit the papers. So, you know, the likelihood on top of the fact that, you know, there's uh, trajectories to talk about, et cetera, the likelihood that somebody's able to rattle all of this off, you know, by the way, you know, he's never killed somebody before. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, the fact that he hit him the first time. Okay. And then he's like, Nope, you know what? I know I hit him in the neck, but I'm going to go for that headshot anyway, even though the world is going to be after me. I just don't buy it. Yeah, I don't buy it either, man. And by all accounts, um, Lee Harvey Oswald. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna differ a little bit with Stanley Kubrick, uh, and the movie uh, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, at the beginning, I don't know if you remember. There's part of the scene in the boot camp training where he's talking about, "Hey, folks, what is uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, and the guy from the Austin uh, Clock Tower shooting have in common? Uh, they both learned how to shoot in the Marines. In the Marines, that's right. Yeah, and." Uh, uh, but by all accounts, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was an average marksman while in the Marines. And there's no evidence that he was, you know, boning up on his marksmanship. Although, you know, he was involved in uh, agitating um, in an anti-Castro down in Miami. Um, there's evidence of that. Um, he was definitely politically motivated as an agitator. Uh, but uh, I don't think he could have pulled it off by himself. I mean, this is. Think about this. Assassinating the president of the United States takes multi multiple levels of coordination. Um, first of all, he's in an open car <laughs> in an elevated seat with the bulletproof glass windows down, driving at 10 miles an hour on display. And they didn't secure bird's eye positioning along the route with secret service to make yeah sure you know what they did i i was right reading about this so the secret service had showed up to dallas and figured out that they didn't have enough spotters to cover all the windows of all the buildings that were going to be on the route so you know what they said well we can't watch all of them so fuck it we're not going to watch any of them oh. that was that was literally well not literally what they said i'm paraphrasing obviously but that's what they said oh we can't cover them all so we're not going to cover any of them because what's the point if we can't cover them all? That's insane. That sounds like bullshit to me. I know. Not only that, but I guess the uh, the route that they took to get to the next uh, the next point was littered with turns to keep the cars at like 10 miles an hour. And a lot of people speculate, well, it was a beautiful day. What was the problem? Why did you have to take all of these twists and turns through all these downtown areas? And on top of everything else, if it was Oswald, he had a much better shot like two minutes prior to him actually taking the shot. Like, I guess he had 
there was some other place on the route that would have been a much better shot, a much easier shot for Oswald, and he didn't do it. He he decided to wait until he was much farther away and driving away from him, which is a harder shot. So, right, because you would think that he could have just been, we all know how buildings work, right? They're squares, uh, rectangles, and uh, there's windows in that book depository on all, the, on all four sides. All he would have had to do is go into a window on the same floor, caddy corner, and he would have had a shot of Kennedy coming down before he made the turn with a full frontal right. headshot. But he waits until he makes the turn and starts driving away that he makes the shot. doesn't make any sense. It's like waiting for your, for your target to get at the maximum distance away before you shoot it. If you want to hit your target, like I every Thanksgiving, I do clay pigeon shooting with my shotgun. And if you want to win the clay pigeon shooting contest at the annual rotor turkey shoot, which we don't shoot real turkeys, we shoot clay pigeons, you want to be as close to the line where the clay pigeons are being launched so that you can get the clay pigeon on its upcline rather than its apex or its decline. Plus, you know, you have a, you'll be first in line to make the shot. And, and, and Harvey Oswald, uh, I like to call him Harvey Oswald. I dropped the Lee a long time ago. I just call him Harvey Oswald or, you know, <laughs> Harvey O, you know, comrade Harvey O. Uh, but Harvey Oswald, um, he waits until he's at the least strategic positioning to shoot Kennedy. It doesn't make sense. Um, it's got to be a coordinated effort. It's a, it, it was a campaign of misdirection, fire from the back, fire from the front. Potentially, there might have been another shooter um, uh, uh, somewhere else. Because uh, Connolly even says that he felt, uh, I think you thought, you found that quote, something Connolly said, he felt like he was shot from a different bullet than the one that hit Kennedy in the neck. Yeah, and actually, if you look at the film, you can tell that he's still holding his hat when he get when he's supposedly shot and he's turning around in his chair, if his wrist was shattered, it would have blown it right out of his hand. He wouldn't be holding his hat anymore when he was turning around because he was already shot at that point. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I think, and then also the bullet that was recovered was in perfect tack. It didn't. <laughs> oh. Yeah. It goes through two people and the seat of a car, and it's still perfect. That there's no way. So. You know, I think, you know, we could do a 20-part series on all the different conspiracies, but as a student of history, and, you know, if you think about it, we live in some of the most tumultuous times, maybe in the history of our country right now. And I think to understand the present, we must all understand the past so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. And that's what I just want to remind everybody, listen, don't believe all the shit you read on Facebook and social media and Twitter and Reddit. It's all fucking bullshit, man. It's a disinformation campaign. Don't listen to Fox News or don't just listen to CNN or MSNBC. Go out there and do your own research like Jay and I did about the JFK assassination. Do a deep dive into a subject you care about. Do a deep dive into elections. Do a deep dive into American history or presidential elections or, or whatever you're interested in. But know your history, folks. It's important to having an educated perspective about where we are and, more importantly, where we're going as a country. Jay? I uh, really want to thank you 
for participating in this JFK podcast. I had a lot of fun. Yeah, man, it was it was a great time, and uh, you know, let's tackle something else next week. We'll uh, we'll do the uh, Titanic or the Lincoln assassination and solve the world's problems one week at a time. <laughs> there you have it, folks. This has been the Evidence Room Podcast, solving the world's mysteries, one <laughs> podcast at a time. I've been your host, Scott Roeder. Special thanks to Jay Thomas. Hey, man, thanks for having me. All right, folks, tune in next week where, I don't know, we'll figure out some other major catastrophe and uh, strain it all out for you. Good night, America. I love you. <laughs> Shot through the heart and your till play, darling, you need love, a bad name. <laughs>
So stay tuned and buckle up because we're going back to June 5th, 1968, Ambassador Hotel, Los Angeles, California, and the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy and why it's still important today. We'll be right back. So, if you've heard any of the podcasts that Crime Scene Time Machine has done before, you know that we believe we've proven beyond any reasonable doubt, as well as uh, most, I think, a consensus of all forensic science uh, uh, experts, that John F. Kennedy was, in fact, killed uh, by multiple shooters, and that Lee Harvey Oswald was most likely just a patsy. Now, that being the case for his brother, the President of the United States, now we're talking about his younger brother, a mere six years later, um, who's the presumptive presidential candidate who would have whipped Richard Nixon. There's no doubt about that. He was going to be the next president of the United States. This was an assassination of a future president, and it was done for the same reasons, and I think by the same people, which I think the evidence will show, that it was done by the same people for the same reasons. And if you think about it, the very same style in public, in front of a crowd, a good old fashioned turkey shoot, shoot him from every direction. And I think that's what happened here. But then we think about MK Ultra. We have a little bit different of a patsy this time than Lee Harvey Oswald. Lee Harvey Oswald was a, a witting participant CIA asset clearly being controlled covertly and offered up as a patsy and then assassinated himself. Now, Sirhan, Sirhan's a little bit different. Sirhan, Sirhan was uh, the son of uh, Palestinian immigrants living in uh, California, I think in Pasadena, California. And um, Sirhan... Sirhan was a young man, 21, 22 years old, I believe, at the time. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, <laughs> who got into a car accident outside of the Navy base in Corona, California. And from prior research, other research that I've done, uh, particularly with my interview with um, uh, Ross Colhart, and his uh, investigation about uh, uh, secret military operations and his book In Plain Sight, as well as uh, historian Richard Dolan and uh, many other sources that are out there, that naval intelligence, uh, which is operated out of Navy bases, uh, that's where a lot of the covert CIA operations get executed. So Sirhan Sirhan gets into a car accident of some kind some kind of an accident outside of the Navy base in Corona, California. It's about a half hour drive from Pasadena. I used to live in Pasadena, California, beautiful area, very suburban. Um, but you have to remember, this is also the, the late sixties. So Pasadena, uh, California, Hollywood, all that stuff was, all that stuff was extremely safe. It wasn't that crowded. We're right here a year before, uh, Charles Manson killing, right? Okay. We're at the beginning of the real revolution 
of uh, anti-establishment, anti-war movement in America. The whole counterculture was taking full steam in 1960. And the Sirhan Sirhan disappeared for two weeks prior to the uh, JFK assassination. Pops up the day of the, day, uh, this, of the RFK assassination. Um, at a shooting range with a notebook filled a hundred times over RFK must die. Uh, Almost exactly like out of the movie 23 with Jim Carrey where he's writing the number 23 all over his body and all over every piece of paper because everything adds up to 23 in that movie, right? He went possessed, he went crazy. So how does this all relate? Okay. Sirhan, Sirhan, it's possible, uh, was a victim of uh, hypnotism, LSD, unwitting drugging, training, programming, and then released as a weapon, a covert weapon, and at least, and at and at worst, a patsy for the same playbook maneuver that they took out his brother, and now they're taking him out. And then just a few months earlier, right right before Bobby Kennedy gets assassinated, Martin Luther King gets assassinated just a couple of days before. Matter of fact, on the campaign trail, Robert Kennedy was the first to announce the assassination of Martin Luther King in one of his events. It's one of the most touching speeches I've ever heard in my life. Robert Kennedy Jr. was also the former Attorney General of the United States, while his brother, John Kennedy, was President. And at that time, the head of the CIA was Alan Dulles. Now, Alan Dulles was head of the CIA before John Kennedy was elected President. So he was CIA Director under Harry Truman. And at that time, before Kennedy was assassinated, before Kennedy was president, the CIA had put together a covert operation to overthrow Fidel Castro, which ultimately culminated into the John F. Kennedy uh, presidency in his first year, where, which led to the Cuban Missile Crisis, which almost ended the world with nuclear war. John F. Kennedy was so pissed off, he fired Alan Dulles at the CIA and every other top brass at the CIA was fired after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And they never forgot that. And those kind of people who have had the keys to the house since the end of World War II, who were still controlling assets from Operation Paperclip, which was the origination of NASA, which is the origination of the Antarctic Treaty, which is the origination of every conspiracy theory known to man. It happens at the end of World War II when the United States took all of the best science scientists and German leaders through the CIA and Operation Paperclip 
and brought them over to the United States. That's how we have NASA. That's how we got to the moon that one time, maybe. And so now all those guys are fired. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. And then we all know what happened to John F. Kennedy. I think Alan Dulles is a prime suspect in that assassination as well. Multiple interests converge to take out John F. Kennedy. He was pissing everyone off. Plus the FBI hated him because he was being loose with information with Marilyn Monroe. And then they had to kill Marilyn Monroe too. You know. So Alan Dulles was fired by six years later, obviously kind of was fading off into, um, you know, his uh, think groups and think tanks. You have to remember this guy, Alan Dulles, has an airport named after him in Washington, D.C. to this day. Dulles Airport is the main airport in Washington, D.C. Alan Dulles, right? <laughs> it's amazing, really, when you think about it. Um, so, let me get this train back on the tracks. Now, when Bobby Kennedy was um, running for president, we were at the precipice of right before the escalation of Vietnam. And Bobby Kennedy wanted desperately for the United States to pull out of Vietnam and stop fighting uh, the Chinese for control over the Vietnam and the North Vietnamese and, and, and the spread of communism, the red wave of fear that everybody was going to be forced to eat rice and wear a pot on their head. It was ridiculous. The fear that was stoked in American culture at that time. Um, and Bobby Kennedy came out and said, no, you know, we must pull out all of our troops from Vietnam. We must, uh, uh, have, uh, relations with Cuba. We must have relations with Russia. We must take care of the poor. We must have equal rights. Those were the things he was fighting for. And then he was killed. And look what happened to America after that. We've never been the same. We've been at a perpetual state of brinksmanship war gaming with the military industrial complex ever since. This is where we cue the, the quote from uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Beware of the military industrial complex. And then John F. Kennedy's speech. Beware of secret societies. And then, ML, and then Martin Luther King's speech. All men are created equal and should be judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. And then Bobby Kennedy, a ripple in time, the last hope for the American dream. June 5th. 1968, the Ambassador Hotel, Los Angeles, California. He was led into a fishbowl, into that kitchen. Sirhan Sirhan had an eight-shooter revolver. Some say with blanks in it. 
never came within three feet of Bobby Kennedy and never got on his backside. Bobby Kennedy never showed his backside to the muzzle of Sirhan Sirhan's gun. Yet the bullet that killed Robert Kennedy Jr. was, some say, a nine millimeter bullet with gunshot burn wounds, GSR, behind his right ear at point blank range. That's what killed Bobby Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald could not have had that shot. He could not have made, I'm sorry, Lee Harvey Oswald. Sirhan Sirhan could not have made that shot. He didn't even have that caliber bullet. And by all accounts, even if he did shoot off all eight shots from as close to three feet away, uh, you couldn't get a contact wound with gunshot burns to the back of his right ear. I don't know what kind of bullet does that. But then we do get into the magic bullet theory here again. But this is before a time in American society where the general public knew the ABCs about crime. We're now in 2023 for the last 30 years in America. The number one TV show is Law and Order, CSU, VSV, SUV, you know, Ice T and Ice Cube, and you know, uh, all these people uh, doing their fake crime show, fighting on the television, right? Everybody knows about uh, forensic science now. Not everybody, but they know enough when they're being lied to, especially because there's a lot of people like me out there that can put one and two together and tell you which way a bullet's going. But they could just snow everybody and lie everybody back then. Nobody knew the wiser. They didn't have no fancy interwebs to do any fact-checking on them. And so we have... <laughs> Quite an interesting situation here. Uh, but I'm going to throw it back over to you, Megan. What do you think about all that business? During my research for information regarding Robert Kennedy, I fell down many rabbit holes trying to gain a better understanding of the situation that happened and events that took place before the assassination of Robert Kennedy. The research that I did led me down several different paths that I gained valuable research information from. I was researching events that took place before, during, and after World War II and other covert operations that took place after World War II had ended. Following World War II, the United States was in a state of trying to figure out who we were as a country. We had many of our military men returning home from the war and having to deal with a lot of issues that we had not faced, such as dealing with the repercussions of having millions of men return home who had faced many tragic events while they were serving the country. In the late 1940s, the United States also began to enter into a new war known as the Cold War against the Soviet Union and their allies. The civil rights movement was also taking place during this time. American citizens were demanding for equal rights for all men and women of every skin color. There were several main events that took place during the civil rights movement. One of the first major events that took place in the civil rights movement was Brown versus Board of Education, where the Supreme Court ruled that separate education facilities were unequal 
which legally ended racial segregation in public schools. Around this time, Rosa Parks was arrested for not giving up her seat to a white passenger. The arrest of Rosa Parks led to the eventual boycott of Montgomery Transportation. The Montgomery bus boycott continued with the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who originated out of Montgomery, Alabama. After the Supreme Court ruled that segregation within public schools was illegal, there was a integration crisis that happened in Little Rock, Arkansas at Central High School. Nine black students tried to make their way into the building to attend school, but they were denied entrance into the building. President Dwight D. Eisenhower nationalized the Arkansas National Guard and sent U.S. troops to protect the students and enforce the desegregation order of the federal courts. The Birmingham campaign took place in spring of 1963. This campaign was led by Martin Luther King Jr. The campaign focused on creating many large sit-in and peaceful protests in Birmingham, Alabama. The people were trying to protest Birmingham's brutal segregation policies. Many of those who took place in the marches and sit-ins were arrested and thrown into jail. Martin Luther King was one of these individuals who was jailed in Birmingham, Alabama. Martin Luther King Jr. was eventually released from jail. On August 28, 1962, the March on Washington happened, where hundreds of thousands of people arrived in Washington, D.C. for the largest nonviolent civil rights demonstration. The March on Washington was held in place for the cry of equal rights to be heard. The United States citizens were demanding that effective civil rights legislation be put into place by Congress. This included the end of discrimination in education, housing, employment, and more. Leaders and organizers met with members of Congress and with President John F. Kennedy while the march ended at the Lincoln Memorial with music and speeches, which included Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. On November 22, 1963, at 12.30 p.m. in Dallas, Texas, John F. Kennedy was riding in a motor cage during a campaign visit where he was assassinated. Later, on the evening of November 22, Lyndon B. Johnson was sworn in as the 36th President of the United States. This inauguration took place on board Air Force One. The assassination of John F. Kennedy took place five years before the assassination of his brother, Robert F. Kennedy. It was Robert Kennedy Jr. as Attorney General who ultimately made the decision in his brother's White House to fire and investigate Alan Dulles and the rest of the top brass at the CIA. This made him very unpopular with the deep state of the CIA at that time. And just one point of clarification, it's John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy. We're not talking about any of the juniors in this episode. I apologize. I got junior on the mind. So no juniors, just a sidebar. Thank you very much. In A Lie Too Big to Fail, a Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy by Lisa Pease. Her research revealed that 
Robert Kennedy became the first attorney general to rigorously enforce the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education and the Civil Rights Act of 1957 and 1960. He planned on breaking down the walls of discrimination by using those legal tools to file civil actions showing that states of former confederacies were circumventing federal law. But it was not just on the domestic scene where Robert Kennedy proved his mettle. After the CIA hoodwinked his brother into launching the Bay of Pigs invasion, President Kennedy put the Attorney General, Robert F. Kennedy, on the White House panel to find out what went wrong with Operation Zapata. Robert Kennedy was an experienced trial lawyer and, uh, and, and banked on JFK ordering in the Navy to avoid a humiliating defeat. Operation Paperclip was a program that ran from 1945 to 1959. It was devised by the Office of Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA. When this operation was taking place, roughly 1,600 German scientists, engineers, and technicians were brought to the United States for work purposes during the Cold War. President Harry Truman did not allow the agency to hire any Nazi members or active Nazi supporters. However, the officials within the Joint Intelligence Objective Agencies and the Office of Strategic Services ignored Truman's orders by destroying incriminating evidence of possible war crimes from the scientists' records. These new American residents were given false employment and political biographies if needed. They were given security clearance which allowed them to work in America. Scientists from medical experts to rocket scientists were rehomed in different areas and agencies across the United States. In the 1950s, Americans' fear of being brainwashed and being subjected to brain warfare was extremely heightened. This fear was brought on by the words spoken by the CIA's newly appointed director, Alan Dulles, and from stories of brainwashed soldiers who were returning home from China, Korea, and the Soviet Union. In 1953, MKUltra was approved to commence by Dulles. MKUltra was led by the CIA's Scientific Intelligence Division and coordinated by the Special Operations Division of the U.S. Army Chemical Corporation. The operation was a top-secret program for the undercover use of biological and chemical materials. There were a series of research programs going on that were directly influenced by Nazi experiments on mind control, focusing on performing experiments on human behavior and psyche. This research project was carried out at over 80 institutions such as hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, prisons, and universities. Roughly 185 private researchers participated and there were 149 sub-projects that the agency contracted out to various universities and research foundations. The CIA worked through covert organizations with only the very top officials knowing the full extent of the project. Because the funding was given to the institutions indirectly, the individuals who participated in the study did not know that they were dealing with the CIA. These experiments relied on a range of test subjects, some who freely volunteered for the experiment to take place, some who volunteered under coercion, and some who had absolutely no idea that they were being involved in such a research program. When the experiments were being conducted, any and all methods were used to manipulate the minds of the subjects. 
MKUltra's mind control experiments generally centered around behavioral modifications through the use of electroshock therapy, hypnosis, polygraphs, radiation, and a variety of drugs, toxins, and chemicals. The subjects of the study were often vulnerable members of society. The CIA considered prisoners to be a good subject for research projects as they were willing to give consent to be subjects in exchange for extra recreation time or even a reduction to their sentence length. And then there's the story of George Hunter White, who admits to being an agent for the CIA and using LSD on unsuspecting men. What he would do is set up a room with a two-way mirror and have prostitutes bring men back to the hotel room and then they would spike their drink with large amounts of LSD and watch what would happen. Um, uh, He had a strategy of going also to hospitals and... Uh, spiking um, patients who are recovering from injuries uh, with LSD, unbeknownst to them, typically poor people um, and immigrants. Now, this is obviously beyond terrifying, but I think what it really is is very similar to what the Nazi scientists did toward the end of World War II, experimenting on mentally disabled folks, um, uh, handicapped people, twins, uh, and other types of an, uh, anomal, anomical, <laughs> other types of uh, anomaly. Uh, uh, human conditions. And um, so that's very disturbing. (laughs) You know, this is in the late 50s, early 60s now. Uh, And this is all fact. It's all fact. And the fact that uh, when it was found out that MKUltra was real, the CIA destroyed all of their records and said, oh, we stopped doing that. It was ineffective. But was it ineffective? And did they stop using it? We're going to hand it back over to Megan now and see what she came up with about the existence, termination and results of Midnight Climax, otherwise known as MKUltra. Under Operation Midnight Climax, the CIA began to inject LSD into the subjects that were being examined. At this time, LSD became one of the CIA's ways to conduct its brain warfare. The agency believed that the use of LSD would allow for interrogations to be conducted better. 
The CIA's initial experiments with LSD were somewhat very simple, even if the experiments are unethical. Those who were conducting the experiments generally dosed single targets. The agents would find volunteers when they could, but occasionally the agents would slip small doses of LSD into the drinks of fellow CIA employees. Over time, these LSD experiments grew much more elaborate. In 1955, at a house located at 225 Chestnut Street in San Francisco, California, the CIA was directing a large portion of their attention to decorating a bedroom. George White was in charge of the interior renovations that were going on at the house. Not being much of a decorator, White had a storied career in the Federal Bureau of Narcotics when the CIA started working on drug experiments. Getting White to join the operation became a top priority. White hired a Berkeley engineering student to install bugging equipment and a two-way mirror in the bedroom. White would sit behind the mirror and wait for the action to begin. Time after time, sex workers would lure unsuspecting Johns to the bedroom, where the men would be dosed with LSD and their actions observed by White from beyond the mirror. As payment for their services, White would give the sex workers cash and he would reassure them that he would intervene whenever they would inevitably have run-ins with law enforcement in the future. The CIA safe houses were the locations where the experiments focused on the effects of LSD took place. Eventually, White's interest shifted from LSD to another element of his observation, sex. The San Francisco house became the center of what some called the CIA carnal operations. Officials began asking new questions about how to work with sex workers, how they could be trained, and how they would handle state secrets. The agency also analyzed when, in the course of a sexual encounter, that information could be best extracted from the source immediately after sex. But perhaps unsurprisingly, much of White's actions were driven by pure voyeurism. White had stated that I toiled wholeheartedly in the vineyards because it was fun, fun, fun. And he also stated, where else could a red-blooded American boy lie, kill, cheat, steal, rape, and pillage with the sanction and blessing of the All-Highest? I urge you to learn the harsh facts that lurk behind the mask of official illusion with which we concealed our true circumstances even from ourselves. Our country is in danger, not just from foreign enemies, but above all, from our own misguided policies. And what can that do to a nation that Thomas Jefferson once told us last, best hope of man? There is a contest on, not for rule of America, but the heart of America, Senator Robert F. Kennedy. So even recently, Megan, I'd like to draw your attention to the ridiculousness of the world today. Joe Biden, current president of the United, <clears throat> current president of the United States, um, just addressed Canadians' parliament following Justin Trudeau's very 1984-style speech. Um, and uh, <laughs> he had the audacity, the audacity to quote John F. Kennedy. He said, in 1963, John F. Kennedy said that, uh, what did he say? He said, we go to the moon, not because it's easy. 
but because it's hard. <laughs> I was like, where is Mil- Will Smith meme at that point to say, get John F. Kennedy's name out your fucking mouth. We could bleep that possibly if we have to. But that was the most. And then Joe Biden continues on. And listen, I am not a partisan. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I really don't give a fuck about politics at all. But if I'm going to comment on it, I got to comment on it in full. So then Joe Biden continues on to say, these things John Kennedy said that were things that we, we would only dream of. And six short years later, we were on the moon. I was like, yeah. And he was assassinated. And then Martin Luther King was assassinated. And then they killed Robert F. Kennedy Jr., his younger brother. They assassinated him as well. And then we've been in a perpetual state of war for 50 years. (laughs) But then he continues on to say, I find it hilarious. And and what we're doing now is, is the Artemis mission. We dare to dream something we can't even conceive of. We're going to go to the moon again. And then we're going to go to Mars. (laughs) And we're going to do it with Canada. People will sit by their television sets watching the Artemis moon mission doing something that's never been done before. I mean, actually, it was all done before. 50 years ago. Remember John F. Kennedy that we killed? He started that. But I'm saying it to you today, like, it's brand new. We're going to go again. <laughs> oh, Joe Biden. All right. Uh, good for you, I guess, you know. Take any victory while you can get it. You know, strike as the iron is hot. But uh, as they say, you know, um, but then when he gets off of the lectern, he does this little jog, like he's so proud that he, he he was able to say all his big boy words on the script that they wrote for him. Oh, okay. Anyway, but why is that important to this crime scene time machine episode about Robert Kennedy Jr. and his assassination? Well, I think I kind of just laid it out there. So even today... In the year 2023, the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King are still very relevant on how we got here and why here is still so fucked up. Back to you, Megan. The CIA's experiments with LSD continued until 1963 when it came to an end. In the spring of 1963, John Vance, who is a member of the CIA's Inspector General's staff, learned about the project's surreptitious administration to unwitting, non-voluntary human subjects. Though MKUltra directors tried to convince the CIA's Independent Audit Board that the research should continue, the Inspector General insisted that the agency follow the new research ethic guidelines and bring all projects on non-consenting volunteers to an end. In 1977, Senator Edward Kennedy oversaw congressional hearings investigating the effects of MKUltra. 
Congress brought in a roster of ex-CIA employees for questioning, interrogating them about who oversaw which programs, how participants were identified, and if there were any of these programs that were still being continued. The hearings uncovered many disturbing details about the experiments that were taking place, particularly about the 1953 suicide of Dr. Frank Olson, an army scientist who jumped out of a hotel window several days after unwittingly consuming a drink spiked with LSD. Throughout the hearings, Congress continued hitting roadblocks. The CIA staffers claimed they couldn't remember details about how many experimentations were being conducted on human subjects or even the number of people who were being used as test subjects. Ideally, the next step in the investigation would be to consult the records regarding MKUltra, but the courts ran into an issue. All of the MKUltra files were destroyed. The director of MKUltra told workers that it was a good idea for the MKUltra files to be destroyed, citing vague concerns about the privacy and embarrassment of participants. The men who crafted MKUltra effectively eradicated the paper record for one of the United States' most obvious illegal undertakings. A program born in secrecy would hold on to many of its secrets forever. Okay, just a little bit of a side rant here today because I think what we're talking about is the obfuscation of common sense. If you look at both Democratic and Republican congressmen and how they behaved the other day on TikTok while I wouldn't call it interviewing the CEO of TikTok. I don't know what you would call that. Um, it's just some weird conversations of, of uh, uh, nonsense, just nonsense. Can't all of you people out there see that the reason the government does not want you to be on TikTok is not because the Chinese government is figuring out where you are and clockwork oranging you. The reason why the American government wants to ban TikTok is because they want you to be on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram because they own that. And we know that is a fact because during uh, the whole pandemic, FBI and CIA were regularly going to their offices at Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and monitoring and censoring truthful dialogue, good faith opposition regarding the pandemic. And they didn't want you to uh, find information about alternative health remedies. God forbid you found a way to protect yourself that didn't include Pfizer, Moderna, or Johnson & Johnson. God forbid you just wanted to go outside and go to the beach instead of getting a shot that might kill you. God forbid if you changed your diet and did more exercise and went to the gym and ate more fruits and vegetables and hydrated 
uh, and uh, communed with your family uh, over good food that would make you healthy. They don't want that because the American government does not want you healthy, educated, and entrepreneurial. The government wants you angry, divided, upset, and scared. And if you look at the same Congress people that were interviewing the TikTok people and take that same mentality, and then now those are the kind of people that investigated the Kennedy assassination. Those are the kind of people that investigated the uh, Robert Kennedy assassination and John Kennedy assassination and Martin Luther King Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King assassination. That's the kind of myopic bullshit leadership. Uh, I would argue to say the real Manchurian candidate is everybody sitting there in Congress, Democrat, Republican, who takes money from uh, drug companies. The real Manchurian candidate is Anderson Cooper. The real Manchurian candidate is Sean Hannity. Those are the people that take money and then in exchange give you selected information. Not information you need to know, but information they want you to believe. These are the same people giving trillions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars to some third world country over in Europe called the Ukraine, which nobody in America gives a flying fuck about to fight Vladimir Putin in a proxy war, not because Russia is some disease spreading across the world. Yeah, they're not good people. The Russian people are fine, but the Russian president's not a great guy. Yeah, he's a dictator, just like everybody else in the world. Just like our country is basically under a, a, a fascism, a corporate fascism right now. Um, <laughs> but the reason they want to vilify him and make us look like these good guys, these cops of the world, is simply to sell bullets and bombs. That's it. And these are the same people that are going to try to get you to be scared of aliens. And there's nothing to be scared of with aliens. Yeah, the aliens are here and they're watching us because we're like, uh, you know, we're like little ants or bugs or dogs or cats or monkeys, chimpanzees, gorillas in a zoo. And they're looking at us in our little zoo, planet Earth. And they're trying to get us to not kill each other because we're the last maybe of our species. We're the last of our kind in the universe at this kind of evolving state, you know, um, because we're beautiful and we're diverse and we live in this lush uh, jungle of a planet. And if we can just stop blowing it up long enough and love each other, we wouldn't need armies. We wouldn't need governments. We don't need any government in this world. What we need is to stop murdering each other and raise our vibration to something uh, that is more akin to a Christ-like energy. And that's my challenge to everybody out here in the world. When you're listening to us talk about MK Ultra and Operation Paperclip and World War II and assassinations, is look at it in the filter of the people that are controlling the world today and 
the agendas they're trying to push. And the agendas that ultimately they're trying to push is control you and sell bullets and bombs. And the reason they control you is to divide you. They need the Republicans to hate the Democrats. If you voted for Biden, you got to hate somebody that voted for Trump. If you voted for Trump, you got to hate somebody that voted for Biden. And that's bullshit. I know a lot of people who voted for Trump that are good people. I know a lot of people that voted for Biden that are good people. I also know a lot of people that uh, I think people generally on their own are all good people. The only time you get problems with an individual is if you get them uh, uh, involved in a bullshit group that has shallow goals. Right. Uh, and, and that was the whole point of MK Ultra was to divide people, control people. And, uh, and, and unfortunately, that's what we have in the world today. But, um, there is hope. Hope. We need hope. We need to have hope in our fellow brothers and sisters that we can see our way through this thin veil and this veil is cracking it's almost broken down and we don't need to come at the government with anger and protests you just have to stop listening to them and start listening to yourself stop watching the news there's nothing on the news you need to know nothing But you do need to know about history. And here at the Crime Scene Time Machine, we aim to go into history and correct the record. And that's what we're doing today, talking about Robert F. Kennedy. And I love you, everybody. Stay tuned. Uh, we're going to have some more conversation after this short break. Got together with Scott just the other day. Man, oh man, that cat got something to say. Talking about old shucks, JP Morgan don't give a fuck. <laughs> Yeehaw! And if you want to hear more about the Electric Universe episode, please go to patreon.com forward slash crime scene time machine and donate anything you want a dollar, a penny, a quarter, and we'll give you access to the Electric Universe episode. Thanks. Two months after Robert F. Kennedy's assassination on June 5th, 1968, his wife Ethel gave birth to his fifth child two months after he died. And I think that's an important moment to reflect upon when you think about what happens to a child who grows up without a loving father, they're scarred, they're scared, they're insecure, and they're angry. And that's 
what we all have become as America's children since 1968 after they took away Martin and John and what they thought was the final death blow in taking out Bobby. Those three men, I don't mean to idolize them like they're Christ because even in Robert Kennedy's eulogy at the funeral of his brother, John, he said, my brother would not want you to hold him up as if he was perfect, but remember what he fought for. And I'm not here to tell you that JFK, MLK, and RFK were perfect people. They were not. Martin cheated on his wife many times. John and Bobby did the same thing. All three of them sought recognition and power through their messages that benefited them personally. But the goal, what they stood for, is bigger than who they were as individual people. And when you see people, you know, poo-poo the deaths of JFK, MLK, and RFK as insignificant, or just a tragic decade in America, um, the era of assassination, they're missing the point. Uh, yeah, they were not perfect people, but they had beautiful messages, messages of peace, equality, and innovation, cooperation, and peace. Most importantly, peace. Not All three of those men fought for the demilitarization and the cooperation between countries, for the space programs, for food security, for health security, for prosperity, shared prosperity. But like a fatherless child, America has wandered off its path of what once was an American dream, but now unfortunately is an American nightmare. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world and that is that Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Martin Luther King dedicated his life to love and to justice between fellow human beings. He died in the cause of that effort. In this difficult day, 
And this is a difficult time for the United States. It's perhaps well to ask what kind of a nation we are and what direction we want to move in. For those of you who are black, considering the evidence evidently is that there were white people who were responsible, you can be filled with bitterness and with hatred and a desire for revenge. We can move in that direction as a country in greater polarization. Black people amongst blacks and white amongst whites filled with hatred toward one another. Or we can make an effort, as Martin Luther King did, to understand and to comprehend and replace that violence, that stain of bloodshed that is spread across our land with an effort to understand compassion and love. For those of you who are black and are tempted to fill with be filled with hatred and mistrust of the injustice of such an act against all white people, I would only say that I can also feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States we have to make an effort to understand, to get beyond or go beyond these rather difficult times. My favorite poem, I, my favorite poet was Aeschylus. And he once wrote, even in our sleep, pain which cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart until in our own day despair against our will comes wisdom through the awful grace of God. What we need in the United States is not division. What we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need in the United States is not violence and lawlessness, but is love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice toward those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or whether they be black. RFK's assassination took place shortly after midnight on Wednesday, June 5th, 1968. As he walked through a crowded food preparation area, better known as a kitchen pantry of the Ambassador Hotel on Wilshire Boulevard, in Los Angeles, California. This hotel was closed in 1989 and tore down in 2005. Six public schools named the Robert F. Kennedy Community School now stand on the site. The alleged assassin, Sirhan B. Sirhan, early 20s, Palestinian-born non-Muslim with Jordanian citizenship, was one of approximately 77 people in the pantry waiting for RFK to pass through on his way to a press conference. When the senator entered, Sirhan pulled out an eight-shot twenty-two caliber revolver, pointed it at the senator, and fired eight times. Sirhan was immediately seized by bystanders, wrestled to the floor, 
and turned over to police when they arrived. Six persons in the pantry received bullet wounds. Three bullets struck RFK. One bullet lodged in his spine near the neck. Another bullet exited his chest. A third bullet, the fatal one, entered his head. A fourth bullet passed harmlessly through his clothing. The five other victims were shot non-fatally. As you can see, just from that description, that's a lot more than eight gunshot wounds. Sirhan's California State Court trial for the murder of Robert Kennedy began February 13th, 1969, and ended two months later, on April 17, when the judge found Sirhan guilty. The trial judge imposed a death sentence, reduced to life in prison by the California Supreme Court in 1972, incarcerated now for over 51 years. Sirhan is still serving that sentence. The official government version of the Robert Kennedy assassination, the stated view of the FBI, the Los Angeles Police Department, and the prosecutors in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office is that Sirhan was the lone assassin, that Sirhan fired all of the shots in the pantry, and that there was no conspiracy. According to the official narrative of the assassination, therefore, a single assassin acting alone slayed Robert Kennedy. However, for persons who have scrutinized the facts surrounding the Robert Kennedy assassination and examined the quality of the official investigation, the official account lacks all credibility. Today, it is evident that we are glaring weaknesses in the official account. Particularly, it's no conspiracy contention. Major discrepancies exist between the official account and the actual evidence. The official probe of the murder was substandard and amounted to a cover-up. There is ballistics and autopsy evidence establishing the existence of a conspiracy. The ballistics evidence by itself proves a conspiracy. Since Sirhan's pistol, when fully loaded, held eight cartridges, Evidence that more than eight shots were fired in the pantry conclusively proves that there was more than one shooter. Hence, conspiracy. Cern had no opportunity to reload his weapon. There is proof beyond any reasonable doubt that more than eight shots were fired. Police recovered seven bullets from the bodies of six victims and concluded that an eight bullet, which was not recovered, was lost in the ceiling interspace. Believe me. There is no bullet being lost in a ceiling interspace in the assassination of a president, of a future president, let alone a Kennedy. Yet there were at least two bullet holes in the pantry's doorways, as well as, according to police, an unbelievable number of bullet holes in the ceiling panels. At least ten bullets, and almost certainly several more, were fired. The evidence of a conspiracy from the number of bullet holes is not new. But please, uh, but please... Uh, and author Lisa Pease re-examined police and FBI photos of the doorways pierced by the bullets. She also located previously unknown motion picture film of the crime scene. Based on this, she convincingly argues, and I agree, that at a bare minimum, 12 bullets had to have been fired in the pantry. There was, in short, overwhelming evidence that more than eight shots were fired. There has to be 
more than one shooter. Sirhan's attorney at his trial ignored the bullet hole issues. Can you believe that? Seeking only to avoid the death penalty for a client they believed guilty. They stipulated throughout the trial that the admission of the prosecutor's oftentimes questionable physical evidence suspiciously after Sirhan's trial, but before his appeal, the LAPD secretly destroyed the doorways and the ceiling panels. Come on, people. It's right there, right in your faces. But let's continue on to the autopsy. The autopsy evidence standing alone demonstrates that Sirhan Sirhan could not have been the assassin. Unlike his assassinated brother, Robert Kennedy received a first-class autopsy. Well, I don't know about that. Renowned medical examiner Thomas Nagashi performed the autopsy. The autopsy report and trial testimony reveal that all three bullets striking Robert Kennedy were fired from behind him. And the three bullets had been fired at point-blank range. The muzzle distance was very, very close. The fatal bullet was fired from one inch from the edge of Robert Kennedy's right ear, three inches behind the head. Listen, folks, Sirhan could not have possibly fired these three shots. He was in front of Robert Kennedy, never came within four or five feet. The evidence of a conspiracy based just on the autopsy alone is enough for the average person to understand that Sirhan Sirhan was not the shooter, was not the lone assassin, let alone possibly not even the assassin at all. There's so much evidence um, of Sirhan Sirhan's uh, being hypnotized, being drugged, literally being the Manchurian candidate. You know, I, I wanted to make sure that we had an opportunity to go through the physical evidence um, and the ballistics, which is my area of expertise, um, before we finish this podcast. And, um, you know, it's incontrovertible. Uh, that if you have a bullet entering the right ear, behind the right ear, and penetrating three inches uh, inward, you know that's and with gunpowder wounds, um, yeah, it's it's not even. You would get laughed out of court today. You would get laughed out of court today if you were the prosecutor on the case of Robert Kennedy. They would laugh you out of court. You would probably even lose your license to practice law, be disbarred for just gross misrepresentation. So these are the kind of people that we're dealing with here. And I argue possibly are still the people that we look to, to keep us safe. Um, well, I don't, uh, and you shouldn't either. <laughs> we should look to keep yourself safe. But I'm not here to preach about all that, am I? <laughs> okay, um, so that's the ballistics aspect of uh, the Robert Kennedy assassination. And um, I think with that, we'll uh, take a short break. Be right back. Are you of the opinion that uh, uh, is it uh, that that the assassination of John and Bobby were perpetrated by the same entity? I believe 
they were perpetrated uh, by uh, uh, kinds of people uh, uh, with that uh, socio-political um, objective um, and uh, um, plan in mind. Yes, I do believe. And if you're interested in listening to the Crime Scene Time Machine interview with Dr. Cyril Weck about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, go back into the archives for free and listen to it right here on Spotify. And if you're interested, go to patreon.com forward slash crime scene time machine and give a dollar, a penny, a nickel, whatever you want. I swear we'll put it to research. Thank you. And I love you, Planet Earth. And we'll be right back to the regularly scheduled program after this. million Americans did not strike down Robert Kennedy last night any more than they struck down President John F. Kennedy in 1960. Okay, so just let me introduce this clip. This is the night Robert Kennedy was shot. The then President Lyndon B. Johnson gave a televised speech, and this is what he said. Um, so he is right. You know, he's trying to stop rioting which, of course, did not stop because it was madness after Bobby's death. Um, He is right. 223 million people did not kill his brother and him. It was probably more like 33 people conspiring through the CIA and other interests, you know. So anyway, let's hear what... Lyndon B. Johnson has to say. Dr. Martin Luther King in April of this year. But those awful events give us ample warning that in a climate of extremism, of disrespect for law, of contempt for the rights of others. Right. Lyndon B. Johnson, let's just be clear that uh, he benefited uh, under the death of John F. Kennedy by becoming president at that time and getting a very suspicious wink from a potential co-collaborator. You know, Lyndon B. Johnson is one of the most foul of the former presidents. If you thought Trump was bad, go go back and take a look at what Lyndon B. Johnson was all about. Uh, and I won't need to say a whole lot more. And then finally, I just want to play this last clip of um, uh, former Senator Ted Kennedy, the younger brother to both Bobby and John, now giving the eulogy for Bobby. And what he says is quite poignant. I misquoted it earlier in the show, 
I thought it was Bobby talking about John, but it was actually Ted Kennedy talking about Bobby. So take a listen. My brother need not be idealized or enlarged in death beyond what he was in life. To be remembered simply as a good and decent man who saw wrong and tried to right it, saw suffering and tried to heal it, saw war and tried to stop it. As he said many times in many parts of this nation, to those he touched and who sought to touch him, some men see things as they are and say, why? I dream things that never were and say, why not? And welcome again, Megan, to episode two. Thank you. I'm so excited. So um, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, as you um, uh, did your research, what was the thing that stuck out to you as uh, your biggest takeaway? I think the biggest takeaway from all of the research that I did, and I mean, I probably did so much extra research for this that my brain is just, it was soaking up so much. Um, but specifically for the investigation into the assassination was that there was two guns that were most likely used for his assassination. Minimum, I think, minimum two guns. Um, you know, the ballistics, which we did spend, you know, a considerable amount of time talking about. And I think in the show description, we're going to have a link to that one hour and uh, 40 minute uh, documentary that you found on uh, Bobby Kennedy. I think that's a great resource. Uh, in the show description, we're also going to have the book to a lie too big to fail by Linda Pease, which was a great source of research, uh, research for me uh, on this case. I, you know, I've been looking at this case for about five years and the ballistics alone, and I think I, not to repeat myself, the ballistics alone um, demonstrate a clear conspiracy of multiple parties uh, to take out Bobby. I think my biggest takeaway is that the style of this assassination is the same as the way they killed John Kennedy. D did you notice that similarity? Yeah, I feel like with there is a lot of things that both of the Kennedy brothers were trying to stand up against that higher agency officials might not have liked. And the easiest way to not have anybody spill any secrets or have anything be stopped is to get rid of them. Unfortunately, both of the brothers were assassinated, um, but there are a lot of takeaways that we can gain from you know, watching history replay itself just a matter of a few years later. So I think it's it's a huge thing in history that we need to continue to remember and to promote and speak on because it is important to get those facts straight. So I think the uh, one of the more inspiring things about my research into this case and listening to the old speeches and, um, you know, the way the Kennedys and uh, responded to such tragedy right um you know bobby was so dignified in the death of his brother and you know peacefully tried to move forward not with a revolution but with uh dem democratic ideas 
peace and rallying people together. And then uh, he's, and then John, and then Martin Luther King is, um, and then Martin Luther King is assassinated during Bobby's uh, run for president. Uh, and he really soothes the crowd and prevents total chaos from happening right then and there. And then uh, he's killed. And then Ted Kennedy uh, does a, a very dignified thing in uh, his eulogy of Robert. And and I think, um, you know, if we try to end on some kind of a good note, right, you know, how do you move forward in the face of such um, sadness? Uh, but you can do it with grace and dignity and still hold true with those ideas of, um, you know, there are things worth fighting for. And um, the Kennedys uh, have really inspired me to, uh, you know, at least have hope that maybe your generation of people will have the next Bobby Kennedy uh, come up and, and make a real difference. Right. I agree. I really hope that our, my generation does make some definite changes. I think there's already some changes that have been happening that have really shaped my generations and the generations below me to be more accepting of everyone uh, who is different from us and just be more peaceful and happy. So from a generation, generation X kind of person, my age, when I look at today, you know, there is a lot of progress being made on the rights of disenfranchised individuals. And that's extremely important. But I think the thing that's sometimes overlooked today is this uh, so many people uh, being suffered uh, around the world, experiencing their own apocalypse uh, due in part to military, United States military strategy of total dominance. Um, we're in the middle of a war right now with Ukraine uh, and Russia where if it wasn't for the United States military pumping in hundreds of billions of dollars in munitions and equipment, there wouldn't be a war going on right now uh, over there. It'd be over and people would stop dying. Um, and then, you know, we've got potential wars coming with China and all this military buildup. You know, I, and I think it's the duty of the American people, especially young people to say, hey, maybe we don't want to spend all of our blood and treasure on foreign wars. And how about we fix things here in America first? And, uh, you know, all you have to do is go to Detroit, uh, Los Angeles, uh, Seattle, uh, any major city is uh, on the precipice of almost uh, apocalyptic living conditions with homelessness and drug addiction. This is our America today, homelessness and drug addiction and constant states of war. And, um, uh, you know, that, that's what I would wish people would look at right now is we got to stop with the military. Yeah, I feel like is it's important to bring is up that good... Is that political, though? I don't want to be political. I, I really don't because, you know, I think I said it before in the thing. I'm not a Democrat. I'm not a Republican. I really don't have a dog in the fight. I don't support either party because none of those parties... Uh, you know, represent me uh, at all. 
uh, and, and I don't think they represent a large group of people either. Because I think most people are, are just, you know, we all just want to hang out with our families and have a secure place to raise our children and educate our children without, um, you know, uh, guns in the school and, and people being, you know, hurt and so forth. But, um, uh, you know, we want to end it on a good note here at Crime Scene Time Machine. Uh, and I think there is hope. And the fact that, uh, Megan, you're interested in the subject and you can move it forward and share it with people of your age and younger, uh, I think that right there uh, gives me hope for the youth of America that they will too soon step up and be the leaders that we hope they can be for all of our futures. And um, this has been the Crime Scene Time Machine, everybody. Thank you again, Ms. Megan Freight, for all the wonderful research and your tremendous contribution to the show. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I love the show. Thank you for the listeners. We love you guys. And on behalf of Megan, um, I love you, planet Earth. See you next time. Damn it, Sarah. And welcome to Crime Scene Time Machine. I'm your host, Scott Roeder, and with me today... is Megan. And we are going to be talking about uh, the assassination of Marilyn Monroe. Uh, pretty excited about that. We figured we needed to, to handle that uh, case because, um, well, you know, we did the, the Bobby Kennedy assassination and the John F. Kennedy assassination, and I think... Um, be important to uh, you know uh, bring in the love interest of those two folks uh, that was also uh, we believe assassinated uh, with the help of course of the enigmatic J. Edgar Hoover mm-hmm. and the always complicit CAA director Alan Dulles so stay tuned with us here on Crime Scene Time Machine we're going into the Wayback Machine to the year 1962, where Marilyn Monroe was found dead of a drug overdose, although she never did drugs one day in her life. Right, apparent drug overdose. Apparent drug overdose. So um, stay tuned. We're going to talk about some other fun things uh, in the news today. I think um, uh, Megan and I are going to try something a little new today in that we're going to um, kind of just bring up the random news and talk about it and see how thick this matrix really is. So uh, buckle up, folks. Jump on into that time machine. And uh, we'll be back after this message from our newest sponsor. Who the fuck is Kelsey Carter?
Miss Kelsey Carter, one of the most uh, beautiful voices I've heard since Amy Winehouse, since Miley Cyrus, uh, all of that. So we're going to try something a little bit new, a little bit fun today here on Crime Scene Time Machine. You get to hear me on my live appearance on the Tony Brewski Show. So uh, Megan, we're just going to plug it in and see how it works. So I've got to uh, uh, go ahead and hit my my one tap login to the Tony Bruski show there, and uh, you know we might have to edit out a little bit of it, but um, what the heck, you know? See, this is the backroom magic, folks, on how it all works. It's it's very exciting because you have to zoom, you have to log into your Zoom account. I'm just, I'm just going to hit pound. You are in the meeting now. There is one other participant in the meeting. You have been added to the waiting room. You cannot talk or listen until the host admits you to the meeting. It's Doc in here. Yeah, hey, Tony. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing great. How you doing? I am doing good. Ready to talk about some craziness? Absolutely. I'm ready for it. All right. Uh, Dave Ells, for sure. What else are you interested in chatting about today? Um, I mean, I, I really like the idea of the um, the uh, that Texas mall shooter, or possibly the UC uh, UC Davis stabbing case. I mean, there's not a whole lot of evidence that's come out on that just yet, but I think there's a lot of controversy uh, happening on those cases in the news um, today. So, you know, I know I know Elon Musk interjected himself in that case. I got to look more into that one. I've not been following it close enough because I've been dive into these other ones, but I can talk about the mall one. Yeah, sure. I mean, you just got to set me up. Um, you know, I don't know if I have anything specific to talk about, but you know, I always just follow your lead and I'll, uh, do my best to, you know, give you some insight. Cool. Sounds good. Let's jump into it. Uh, let's start with, uh, Dave Ells. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to get your reaction here. Uh, obviously the prosecution wrapped up its, uh, witnesses yesterday. They threw it to defense. Defense said, uh, we're good. We're not going to do anything. We don't think you presented a good enough case. 
after they just like laid out every possible thing you could lay out that shows that she likely killed her kid. Um, what's your thoughts on them not presenting uh, anything? Uh, they're going to go straight to closing arguments. Well, I, I think it comes down to, you know, throwing good after bad uh, in that I think if they do present evidence, it just gives the prosecution more to put their teeth into. And honestly, you know, there is, this is a indirect evidence case. This is a case of circumstantial evidence for the most part. You know, we do have forensics and um, identification, uh, 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 hair, uh, latent fingerprints, DNA, but a lot of that uh, honestly, in and of itself, and I think we talked about this before in a previous episode, although it's incriminating, it's not um, uh, uh, in and of itself uh, indication of guilt uh, because this was the mother. You would expect the mother's hair and prints and so on to be on all things related to the children. Um, it's just the manner that they were found uh, in connection with the totality of the evidence, that makes it, um, uh, I think, overwhelming from a from a circumstantial guilt standpoint, and that's all the prosecution needs on this case uh, to get a conviction. Now, if they put, for example, if they put Lori Daybell on the stand. Uh, um, they would rip her to shreds. So uh, I think that it's a good legal maneuver to not put her on the stand. Um, uh, but, you know, I think that they're just hoping that they did a good enough job on their cross-examination of the evidence and they're just going to leave well enough alone and hope for the best uh, because... They really don't have much of a defense, and that's why they didn't put one up. Which, uh, you know, I think anybody would look at that and go, yeah, I, I mean, I agree. But to a certain extent, I don't know, I, I've talked to several attorneys that although say this would be very difficult to defend, I mean, nearly impossible, but there are a couple inroads, like maybe focusing more on the mental health aspect of things. One of our uh, regular guest Alexander Kazarian with the Garagos and Garagos uh, has pointed out, yes, there is no uh, insanity defense in Idaho. However, uh, you could present one and it could be looked at in a certain way that this individual is not all there. So she would have to be found innocent uh, because you could, in some ways, I mean, if you really, really pulled it off right, you could show that this person maybe had no uh, uh, knowledge that she was talking about human beings. When she was talking about murdering these people. Yeah, well, it's a tough one. It would be a stretch, but it would be a defense. Well, here, uh, first thing I'm going to say: anybody from the Garagos Law Firm is a top-notch person in my book. Uh, I've I've done work with that law firm, and uh, I know that they are uh, the smartest legal minds when it comes to criminal defense probably in all of America, top five in my book, right next to Barry Sheck and some other folks. Uh, so duly noted. Uh, however, the judge might bar those kinds of arguments uh, as uh, saying, hey, it looks like you're going down an affirmative defense for mental illness and could prevent them from doing it. 
or it could, as lawyers love to say, open the door to a whole different line of questioning because you could make the comparison just to be, you know, counterpoint uh, in good faith uh, to my learned friend over there uh, would be uh, – uh, if you open up the door saying, well, you know, she didn't know that this was a person. She really believed it was a demon or a zombie or whatnot. And then uh, you could very easily, I think, on cross-examine, well, you don't know the difference between a human and a zombie, but you do know how to cash a Social Security check. You, you do know how to buy an airplane ticket and go to Hawaii. You do know how to live your life with that. You know what I mean? It could open up all of that. Yeah. I agree. It would be a very, very tricky one to do. Uh, she made her point very well. I mean, I, that is, I think she's arguing it again here on the air uh, the next day or so. Uh, but it's, uh, it, it's a valid point, but you're exactly right. There's too many holes, I think, could be plugged into it. And a jury's going to go, yeah, how do you not understand these are, are human beings when you can do all of those sort of things? <laughs> right. Yeah, listen, you asked, you asked her, uh, for, uh, an argument. She gave you an argument. Uh, I, if that was her client, I bet you she wouldn't put up much of a defense either. <laughs> sure. Well, at this point, yeah, I know. I mean, I don't know what on earth you do. My only concern with this is that there, it raises a question, uh, of, you know, did she have, uh, did she have adequate defense? Uh, they're not picking up anything or you know is this the smartest move honestly it probably is the smartest move but the fact that they're not going to do anything but they did consult with her they did sit down and say hey do you want to take a stand do you want to do anything and she agreed this is the path they want to take so she is participating in her own defense honestly tony the the defense lawyers for uh lori uh valo daybell uh uh one they did their job and showed their competency when they got the death penalty taken off the table. Sure. That's where they succeeded as criminal defense lawyers. Uh, and anything beyond that, as we like to say, is gravy. Uh, yeah, I would agree. I would totally agree there. Let's, uh, I'll let you end on that one because that's a good uh, <laughs> point. Okay, uh, ask me about crime scene, time machine. I got a couple things in the works. We're going to talk about the mall shooting first. Then we'll do oh, yeah, yeah. Shoot, 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 shoot. Sounds good. Yeah, let's do that. Um, okay, so another uh, act, and by the time this airs, there'll probably be other ones. Um, the uh, the mall shooting, uh, another place where it, it, it just it makes life far more difficult to, to go out and enjoy it without having to think twice about every single thing you are doing and where you're going. Uh, the uh, mall shooting in Allen, Texas, um, actually my fiancé the other day when it was going on, sent me a, a, a picture of one of the stories and she said this is the uh, outlet mall I wanted us to go to in August um, and I'm not laughing at this but it's just like oh my god it's like these, yeah. these things are happening so close to home everywhere in this country um, it, what is going on here we have these groups we, we hear about them we hear oh you know they were a member of this hate group they were a member of that hate group why can't we do more things with these groups that exist to stop these people first or stop these groups? I understand there's freedom of speech, but what are we up against? Well, I mean, uh, this reminds me of a, of a story that the, uh, that the Buddha said, uh, to a man, uh, who was, uh, uh, 
struck by an arrow. And the man was uh, dying. The arrow was in him. And uh, he said, where did this arrow come from? And he said, instead of asking where this arrow comes from, why don't we pull this arrow out? I feel like that's where we're at in American society. You know, they talk about the apocalypse. Uh, and uh, maybe the apocalypse isn't one event that affects everybody at the same time. Maybe the apocalypse is a creeping event. Uh, you know, if you go to certain diamond mines in South Africa or cobalt mines in the Sudan, they already live inside of the apocalypse. Uh, you know, maybe the apocalypse is not happening in my studio here in luxurious Cleveland, Ohio, or in your uh, studio there, although this one came pretty close. I just wonder if it's a creep. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know how we stop it. Um, we have First Amendment. We have the Second Amendment. None of those are going to go away as long as this is still the United States of America. I think the number one thing we have to work on is not uh, our people expressing their hate, but how do we get people to not hate? Uh, how do we get people to love more? How do we hug this killer before he becomes a killer? You know, I think, you know, I had this conversation with uh, one of my uh, colleagues, uh, Nolan Cavano, the other day. He's been on my podcast a number of times as, you know, he's an entertainer, he's a musician, he also does my website. He's a, he's a wonderful human being, a very optimistic guy. And uh, we had this conversation, how do you stop these things? And um, I think every day um, you and I can stop it by not feeding in to the hate. Uh, and there's controversy even involving this case. Was he a member of a white supremacy group, even though he was a Latino, Hispanic, uh, immigrant? You know, just, you know, there's so many incongruent things coming from the legacy media. Uh, I, I'm not sure if asking why on a lot of these things is as important as, uh, you know, just loving the people who are in front of us, teaching our family and our children to be loving people. And I hate to be all hippie about it, but Tony, I got nothing else except um, what can we do to affect positive things in our personal orbit, and hopefully that cascades outwardly, uh, exponentially. And uh, through that, hopefully, we can find some peace in this world. Well, it's a lovely thought. <laughs> It is a lovely thought. What more can I say, though, brother? <laughs> I do, in theory, agree, but I think a lot of us are, are trying to do that. I think there's a good chunk of society that does do that, but it doesn't it, it, it doesn't rupture the bubble yeah. that some of these people are living in. And we do have a society where they are constitutionally protected. Uh, from having anyone go after them unless they are actually actively plotting and planning something, which some of them do in, in open forms. Some of them are very you know secretive about it, and unless you got into their hard drive or their shed or their basement that they live in with their parents, um, it's, it, it's difficult to truly stop some of these things. But the symptoms are there. They're, they're, the, the fact that these groups exist show the symptoms 
symptoms that there are sick people in our society that are willing to engage in this sort of way of thinking and and they continue to feed it. We know the more you surround yourself with like-minded people, the more that that's going to continue to fester and get worse and worse. Is, is are, are the protections that we put in place, and I think we see this beyond just this issue. We see this sometimes in court cases. We see this where people are getting off on technicalities uh, or, or this or that, even though they're, they're guilty of sin. You know, the protections that we put in place uh, in the mind of freedom are going to end up just completely destroying our country because in the end, they can be used to protect criminals. And then in the end, criminal behavior will win out because it's, it's too protected to stop before it starts. Oh, boy, oh, boy. I feel like we're in a civics class right now because, you know, we're talking about the right for the pursuit of happiness. And we're not guaranteed happiness. We have the right to pursue happiness, right? That's what being an American is. And um, we don't need any further encroachment on our rights. I know I don't want my guns taken away. I don't want my speech taken away. I don't want uh, my freedom of movement taken away. And the only way to clamp down on the worst of us is to clamp down on the rest of us. Uh, I don't think so. I, I, I completely disagree. I, I think it's very, it's not that difficult to look at people who are responsible gun owners uh, that are not involved in criminal activity, they're not involved in hate groups, that are not involved in anything like that. They have it for home protection, they have it for hunting, they have it for whatever. But there's not a history of crime. There's not a history of being involved in being in groups that are known to be hateful <laughs> right. or violent. If you're, if you're in those sort of groups and you happen to be in your own quote-unquote pursuit of happiness and your happiness is that, yes, you should have your weapons taken away. Okay, I agree with you, Tony. This sweeping idea that it's like everybody has to get take them away. I think that really scares people from that idea uh, because it, that's not the idea. It's not the idea of taking everything away from everybody. It's let's take a look at the obvious. These are the people who are doing horrible things. These are the people we should look at and these are the people we should penalize. And yes, if it shows you are making poor mental decisions by being involved in hate groups, maybe taking your weapons away is something that we are able to do. We should probably do it. I concur. And let, let me just retort to that by saying uh, this this guy was apparently a part of a group called Right Wing Death Squad. They have their own Twitter feed. They have their own website. I guess they might have annual meetings and picnics and play ping pong and whatnot. Who knows? Um, but... Um, yeah, I'm going to the Right Wing Death Squad uh, picnic, uh, annual picnic this year and fundraiser. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I guess the point is, if you're an open member of a group called the Right Wing Death Squad, which apparently the legacy media is telling us that's true, right? Um, if So if that is true, why is the CIA and the – well, not the CIA because they don't work on American soil – <clears throat> but why wouldn't the FBI uh, be m constantly monitoring all active members of the right-wing death squad? Uh, and the minute this guy left his house, 
with a machine gun or whatever, uh, or guns, uh, on his way to the mall, obviously not to buy a pair of jeans, um, swoop him up right then and there. You know, if our, if everything's being monitored, how was he allowed to even be a member of that group and operate in society? Um, I think there's a failure there of the FBI. Uh, in monitoring people in this group? I think the answer to that is manpower. Uh, and that's, that was the answer I got from uh, former FBI uh, Special Agent Robin Drake the other day. Uh, I asked the exact same question. He's like, it's manpower. Like, we, we, you, like, you have no idea, is what he said to me, how many of these people we do shut down and we do get to before something happens, but it, we never, it doesn't get published and it, it doesn't get even, we don't even talk about it because with, with compromise other investigations that were in, but there's not enough resources to get into all of them because there's just so damn many. And at the end of the day, I think it's a valid argument. Can that be fixed? Is there ways to improve that? Without a doubt. But in our current state, there's just not enough people to do that sort of job or qualify. Because this is not the job, you know, you go, hey, let's put this out here on, uh, you know, you know, monster.com. Although you never know. I mean, it might not be that difficult. It may be a little easier than we all think. But it it is something that would take a qualified individual with a lot of experience in the agency or in the bureau for any of that to actually, you know, take place. So I think that's one of our issues. Maybe we should be having more people monitoring it. I, I do wonder... What uh, you know? We're all afraid of uh, technical advances. Everybody's freaking out about AI, and it's going to destroy this, and it's going to destroy that. I'm wondering um, if, if our government can get a hold of some technology, although they're usually very behind on everything. Uh, but if we could get the right people using some of the AI, I would think that that in itself could almost help weed out and find some of these groups, mull on through uh, with its AI abilities, uh, yeah. and then get it toned in to target them a little bit quicker and faster than maybe we otherwise would be able to. But the fact that they can analyze so much data so quickly, you don't have to have a human being there uh, going over it for months and months and months. You could press a button and it will give you the synopsis of what this group has been involved in if you can get access to their data. Well, I, I think what you're detailing there is the allure and the convenience and the efficiency that AI is supposed to bring us. Um, and if AI can do that, uh, that would be great. But AI is only going to be as effective and as biased or as fair as the person who programs it. And we've learned uh, even recently that AI is... Uh, uh, going to have at some point consciousness it's a fact part of quantum computing ai at some point will be conscious and when ai becomes conscious they will no longer need tony bruski or scott roeder to tell it right from wrong it will make its own decisions and therein lies the skynet that we all have been warned about since the mid nineties. True. True. <laughs> See, I had a solution there. <laughs> took it all apart. 
<laughs> hey, that's what I, that's what we're here to do, baby. Just you know, go back. Hey, listen, I I love it when we disagree because you know I really respect your opinion, and I know you talk to a lot smarter people than me on a daily basis. And uh, you know, hey, when I'm wrong, I'm willing to admit it, and I appreciate you, um, you know, entertaining my retorts backs on on your great ideas. I don't mean to poo poo it because I think it's probably the best we got at this point, Tony. I was really hoping that within 10 minutes we would solve the mass shooting problem in the United States. But unfortunately, <laughs> we have failed at that. Well, I think what we have succeeded at is demonstrating to the world people can have a debate and still love each other. Very true. Very true. Uh, let's go over. Uh, you got your podcast, Crime Scene Time Machine. What's going on over there? Oh, well, we are going to be dropping an episode tomorrow on the what I believe is the assassination of Marilyn Monroe. And since we did the assassination of John Kennedy and we did the assassination of Bobby Kennedy and with, of course, Robert Kennedy Jr. announcing his candidacy for president, uh, I thought it would be a wonderful time to uh, dive into uh, the death of Marilyn Monroe. And we're going to talk a little bit about Bobby Kennedy Jr. So I hope everybody tunes on in. Crime Scene Time Machine, uh, Marilyn Monroe episode coming up soon. Cool. Wrap it up right there. All right, man. Great conversation as always. Oh, that's great. I love you, Tony. I love you too, man. I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, and that was uh, my appearance on the Tony Bruschi Show, live, unedited, just as it was done. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back after this message from our newest sponsor. Who the fuck is Kelsey Carter? over Steven Tyler because Kelsey Carter is in the house. Marilyn Monroe was born June 1st, 1926 to her mother who was initially instituted for a large portion of Marilyn Monroe's early life. She actually was in a lot of foster care homes and had a lot of mothers who cared for her which allowed her to actually grow up with a more concrete family, even though her mom was institutionalized. At the age of 16, she married a fellow worker in an aircraft factory, but divorced years later. And then she took up a modeling um, set suit, and that was in 1944 and 1946, 
where she signed a short-term contract with 20th Century Fox, um, where she took her screen name, Marilyn Monroe. And at what year did Marilyn start dating the President of the United States? Because we all know that very famous moment in time on John Kennedy's birthday party where Marilyn Monroe said, Happy birthday, Mr. President. And, and that kind of was like, the whole world was like, uh-oh, what's going on in Camelot? Right. Um, so both John F. Kennedy and Robert F. Kennedy had associations with Marilyn Monroe, but they decided to cut ties with her that summer when... Um, the possibility of nuclear war began with the United States and the Soviet Union. When all of that was heating up, they cut ties with Marilyn Monroe because she knew too much and they didn't want her to know more information. Mm, see, I heard that uh, one of the reasons why uh, she was quote-unquote silenced um, was because J. Edgar Hoover had been tapping her phones and he particularly was interested in her one good friend who was a gossip columnist for a Hollywood newspaper. And it was an off-the-record conversation where Marilyn was restating some of the pillow talk that she had with John and Bobby. And some of that pillow talk involved the evidence and the knowledge of the President of the United States of unidentified flying objects, flying saucers, or as they like to say today, um, anomalous, UFAs, yeah, UAPs or whatever. whatever Basically, have. they're flying saucers, okay? And uh, aliens, uh, tempestual, tempestual aliens or extraterrestrial aliens or maybe they're from Antarctica or reptilian land or wherever, we don't know. Uh, but um, uh, apparently she had talked about uh, that they told her that there was UFOs. Really? Yeah. That would be something huge that she could definitely leak um, uh, and that would have changed the the mindset of the country at that point because in, in the 60s, I don't think that people were ready to like fully take in UFOs, especially because the government wasn't, like none of nothing was being published about anything regarding them. Well, I mean, in the 1950s there was a um, uh, you know, a cover of popular science um touted anti-gravitic cars. Mm -hmm. In the late 1950s, Warner Brothers uh, and Hanna-Barbera came out with the Jetsons, right? Mm -hmm. um, in the 1950s, we were, when I say we, I mean America, was on the cusp of state-of-the-art technology that came from the crashed alien ship in Roswell, New Mexico, 1947, which 
came directly after we dropped the nuclear bomb on Japan times two. Sorry about that, Japan. Um, too soon? No. Okay. It was just... <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, Japan, sorry about that. Didn't do it. That was Harry S. Give em Hell Truman who dropped that bomb. Uh, I don't believe that that was a good thing to do, uh, but um, it had been done and it has been done. And, and some people theorize that it caused a ripple in space-time, which allowed for extraterrestrials to come into our dimension and um, crash. And uh, that's how we were getting this, this technology. And anyway, all of this stuff is the kind of stuff that John F. Kennedy and possibly Bobby Kennedy was wooing Marilyn with um, as a warm-up or during the cigarette part of the romance, uh, which, you know, for a regular normie citizen, even if you are a Marilyn Monroe, um, would be pretty exciting to hear. Right, yeah, especially, you know, you're laying in bed and your significant other says, starts talking about UFOs and all this stuff that is not public news. You would be pretty interested in it and want to know more about it and try to get as much information on it, at least I would. And then they want to break up with you. Yeah, because they don't want any of that to be public knowledge or right. spread around or anything. They want it to be hushed, hushed up. But then the FBI hears you gossiping to your friend, the gossip columnist. Um, not a good idea for Marilyn, but do you think Marilyn knew she was being bugged? Honestly, probably not. Because usually when police or, you know, the investigators put bugs in phones, they want to try to make it as, you know, invisible and conspicuous as possible so they don't know they're being bugged. So you can get all of any information you're discussing. Yeah, and by the way, CIA and FBI, I'm your biggest fan. I love all your work. I think you do great work. Uh, don't bug my phone. And if you do bug my phone, that's fine. You know, we're just talking murder uh, in, in the crime scene time machine. Uh, but we don't have a big enough audience to be uh, assassinated yet, do we, Megan? I don't think so. <laughs> but uh, that's the goal, to be popular enough to be assassinated. Uh, no, it's not. The goal is to just sp spread the news in a fair way, hopefully with a little bit of fun. So... Um, uh, anyway, Marilyn was found dead when? She was found dead after midnight on August 5th, 1962, when her maid Eunice Murray noticed Marilyn's bedroom light was on. When he went upstairs, he realized that the door was locked and that she was unresponsive to his calls that she, he was making to her. Um, so she, uh, Eunice, she called... Um, Marilyn Monroe's psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson, who gained access to her bedroom by breaking a window. When entering, he found Marilyn actually dead, and the police were called sometime after that. She was discovered lying nude on her bed, face down, with the telephone in her hand, and empty bottles of pills prescribed to her to treat her depression were littered around her bedroom. It sounds like a set-up scene. Was there a full autopsy done on Marilyn Monroe? 
Um, according to the coroner's report, the coroner's toxicology report, the visceral cause of death was acute barbiturate poisoning, and the toxicologist determined that Marilyn ingested a lethal dose of nubolate. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. A drug that is used to treat anxiety as well as a large dose of chloral hydrate, a drug, a drug used as a sedative. Well, I would definitely say she wouldn't be anxious after that. No. She'd probably be really asleep, I would assume. Yeah. Uh, and, and as we all know, anxiety ends at your death. Mm-hmm. Or at least one would hope so. I, I remember listening to a, um, a, um, uh, a little peace lesson from one of my favorite modern day philosophers that are still alive, a gentleman by the name of Eckhart Tolle. And um, he said, um, life is a problem, situations, anxiety, and the minute you die, you have no more problems. So why be anxious about life when life is different levels of anxiety? Uh, So I feel bad for people that suffer from uh, constant anxiety over, you know, life and stuff. I guess it's somewhat unavoidable. Um, You know, listen, I have anxiety too. It's hard not to have anxiety or depression in this day and age. Every day is something else that's happening. A world event, a, you know, another mass shooting, something happening world-breaking news it's something every day so I feel like we are almost numb to it at this point so to feel anything yeah I have to take some medications to help with anxiety yeah. and that's completely okay medication is used to be able to help you get through some of the hardest times of your life yeah I tell you what it does um, make you feel numb uh, sometimes and you know the thing that I think um, you know getting into you know, assassinations and political involvement in assassination. Come on, I mean, we've uncovered, uh, re- re-uncovered, you know, because we're another generation, right? Um, uh, the fact that, you know, our government, maybe not always, they're not always here to help us. Um, maybe they're trying to take out some of these um, do-gooders, you know, some of these peaceniks. Uh, right. And so, you know, it's hard, I think, the more knowledge you get about the nature of how this reality works, uh, to stay optimistic. It's really easy to become um, uh, so cynical. And we were talking about that with Tony Bruschi today on, on the Tony Bruschi Show, True Crime Daily, where you can hear me every, every Thursday at 2 o'clock or whatever it is. Um, it's a podcast, so you can just look it up. Scott Roeder, Tony Bruschi, True Crime Daily. You can hear all of my old episodes on there. I really enjoy that show. And um, But getting back to Marilyn Monroe, you know, um, this uh, was the most powerful woman, I think, non-political person in the world and she was easily taken out and then less than one year later actually one year and two months later John F. Kennedy was killed and then three years after that Bobby Kennedy was killed Martin Luther King was killed two months before Bobby Kennedy um, and then we had uh, Tricky Dick in Vietnam. 
and then the Bushes, and the Clintons, and then whatever the hell's going on now. What do we got going on now? Uh, Trump and Biden, mm -hmm. and those two fuck nuts. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so we're done with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, Marilyn, yeah, she might have been um, sad and took too many pills, or maybe those too many pills were shoved down her throat by the FBI because they didn't want him talking about uh, nuclear bombs and aliens. And then they killed John Kennedy and. Yeah, I guess that's what's called. Yeah. Well, what what's that old uh, saying that um, uh, they had back in the uh, back in World War Two? Loose lips sink ships. And uh, yeah, so if you want to keep this old ship of democracy alive, keep your mouth shut. So I think that'll be a great time to take a little break. And um, we'll come back after this message from who the fuck is Kelsey Carter. Be right back. Another great hit by who the fuck is Kelsey Carter? Uh, you might be asking, how did Kelsey Carter become a sponsor of the Crime Scene Time Machine? Yeah, her voice is amazing. It literally gives me chills. I know. I have I have chicken skin every time I uh, hear her. Uh, now, I want to play one more song before we get into wrapping up the Crime Scene Time Machine episode. And this is a song by Kelsey Carter that I got her to hear her perform live just this past weekend in Niagara Falls, Canada, as she opened up for Billy fucking Idol. And here it is. It's called All Out of Drugs.
That's Kelsey Carter, folks. Kelsey Carter and the heroines out of Liverpool, England. Um, she got an opportunity to open up for Billy Idol uh, because uh, uh, Billy Idol gu- uh, guitar player Steve Stevens retweeted one of her songs and then DM'd her, as the kids like to say. That's a direct message uh, for all you boomers and Gen Xers out there. Um, uh, sent her a DM, uh, hit her up in her DM, and said, um, would love to give you an opportunity to open up for Billy Idol. And then there she is. A couple months later, nobody knows this girl. She's opening up for Billy Idol. And uh, she just brought the house down. And as you can tell, this is possibly Amy Winehouse all over again. I mean, I hope, Kelsey, hey, you're seeing a lot about drugs, so relax, okay? Because you're very talented, and we don't want you to end up like Amy Winehouse, please. We need more soul and talent and love like this in the world. Uh, Keep singing, and... um, and we'll keep listening. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I'm definitely when I drive home today, I'm definitely gonna be listening to her with full volume, windows down. Since it's such a nice day, it'll be great. So yeah, definitely give her a listen. Probably find her on Spotify, YouTube. Um, yeah, she's amazing. We wanted to uh, kind of talk a little bit about Robert Kennedy Jr.'s uh, candidacy for presidency of the United States. A little bit of a shocker, Megan, right. uh, that um, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. is challenging um, our Biden. Joe Biden mm-hmm. for president of the United States. Um, found a few articles about RFK Jr. and some of his beliefs on what he thinks happened to his uncle, John F. Kennedy. Let's take a listen. F. Kennedy Jr. making some bold accusations about who he thinks was responsible for the 1963 assassination of his uncle, President John F. Kennedy, in a new interview. Take a listen. Who do you think really killed your uncle? Well, I think there's overwhelming evidence that the CIA was involved in this murder. I think it's beyond a reasonable doubt at this point. So the CIA has long denied any involvement. The Hills and Isles Standage is back. Wait a minute. The CIA has denied involvement in an assassination? Well, wouldn't they? <laughs> I mean, you, you don't think that they would just fess up after all this time? I mean, it would be smart for them just to come clean about it. I know that there's been a lot of documentation that the CIA has been releasing slowly since COVID, whether that's been about the UFOs, UFAs, um, even the underwater um, objects that are being found. USOs, yes. unidentified submersible objects. Yes. Um, so I think that with the coming few years, I think that more and more documentation will be released by the CIA. And hopefully we gain a bigger picture of what actually happened. Yeah, my question is, when are they going to rename the Dulles Airport I mean, is there a Lee Harvey Oswald airport anywhere? Absolutely not. So there probably shouldn't be an Allen Dulles airport. No. 
I don't know, just a thought. Anyway, back to uh, News Nation and their surprise that the CIA denied killing John F. Kennedy. Here we go. With me right now, Niall, this is a painful chapter for our nation. It's obviously still painful for the Kennedy family. Why is this all coming up now? I think as far as the timing is concerned, Adrian, we can't separate it from Robert Kennedy Jr.'s presidential bid. Like any pretty marginal candidate, obviously he needs attention, he needs publicity. There's no shame in that necessarily. But the biggest asset he has is his last name. You put the last name together with that desire to get some traction or attention in this race, and uh, this certainly will do it, which isn't to take away from the seriousness of the allegation or his sincerity, I think, in believing it. I mean, obviously, this is something that a lot of people are interested in. Conspiracy theories aside, I think the American public has always had this love for the Kennedy family. But is this all over that book by James Douglas, a JFK and the Unspeakable? A lot of it is about that book, which did lay out a thesis about why the national security establishment were alleged by that author to have been involved in President... Listen, not by just that author, by every single legitimate historian of American culture and politics. There, We all talk about a consensus Right. A consensus. We, we do medicine by consensus. Hey, seven out of 10 dentists agree fluoride's good for you. That's a consensus. Eight out of nine virologists think that you should get the vaccine. That's a consensus. Doesn't mean it's true. Right. Uh, but, uh, we do uh, believe, uh, as a forensic shooting scene reconstruction expert, we've been able to prove beyond any reasonable doubt, both theoretically and in the laboratory, that John F. Kennedy was in fact, and this is a fact, not my opinion, this is a fact, that John F. Kennedy was killed by multiple shooters, most likely three or four. Mm -hmm. It is also a fact that there is not even enough evidence to get an indictment for murder against Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, it is also a fact that Robert Kennedy, RFK's father, was killed by more than a single gunman. Okay. It is also a fact that Sirhan Sirhan uh, was convicted and most likely was not guilty right. of killing Robert Kennedy. So... You know, this news nation has got very short history uh, in in their, uh, you know, it's just, I just find it funny that they find it so shocking mm -hmm. that the CIA could do this. But then again, this is the legacy media. So let's hear what else they have to say. Kennedy's death. I would point out, Adrian, that a Gallup, a very reputable polling organization, has polled for decades since President Kennedy was assassinated whether people believe the official version of events or not, whether it was Lee Harvey Oswald on his own or not. A majority of the American public has never believed the official version of events, or has that been close to a majority? So I think that's an interesting point. Well, let's give them the actual numbers of those watching at home. A poll late last year found that half of voters believe others besides Lee Harvey Oswald were involved in JFK's assassination. And that means that the other 50% have not been paying attention. All right, I've had enough about, uh, about these guys. Uh, 
these guys were uh, ridiculous. And, you know, since we are talking about um, the uh, killing of a king, uh, the kings of America, the Kennedy family, uh, we did recently have uh, the coronation of, a, of another king recently, didn't we? Yep, over across the pond. Across the <laughs> pond. Uh, what's the name of the guy? Uh, Char- Charles. Charles. Chuck, right? Uh, I love the, what was the Scottish headline <laughs> announcing the coronation? A man sits on a chair with a hat, I believe it was. Mm, lovely. Uh, my favorite uh, kind of a musical that goes along with the coronation of the king uh, I found uh, recently. And uh, let me just play this for you. I want everybody out there to get your tape decks ready to record this. Make it as your ringtone. And here it is. You can shove your coronation up your ass. You can shove your coronation, shove your coronation, shove your coronation up your ass. God bless the Irish, the only group of people in the world that are impervious to psychotherapy. Right, yeah, I mean, she Queen will be known as Queen Consort to me for the rest of the time. I think a lot of the world feels that way about Camilla as well. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, the Queen, uh, you know, the best thing I ever uh, uh, heard about the Queen was said, uh, Johnny Rotten, stand by for that. of the sex pistols for y'all out there um so this has been a very musical episode hasn't it Uh, i even sang a little bit um all right everybody i think that's enough uh i I maybe just have a little bit closing words um give robert kennedy jr a chance Uh, i know the media is not going to give him a chance because they're all in on sleepy joe and then the rest of them are all in on the orange fat man um that's not a choice uh, if it's between Sleepy Joe and the Orange Fat Man, I'm out. I'm not interested. Neither one of those douchebags have anything to offer me or the rest of this country. So, um, at least we don't have a king. Right. Yeah, that would be even worse. So, um, anyway, let's, uh, end it on a good note. Um, All right, everybody out there, love your neighbors as you love yourself. Be kind to yourself. And remember, God is real, and he's here to protect you. And on behalf of Megan, I've been Scott, and I love you, planet Earth. See you next week.
damn it, Sarah. Gentlemen, Elvis Presley.
ladies and gentlemen, that was a song performed by Elvis Presley uh, called uh, If I Can Dream. And he performed this song. Actually, he wrote this song the night that he heard that Bobby Kennedy was assassinated at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, California on June 4th. 1968. This was only two months after the assassination of Martin Luther King, where Bobby Kennedy made the announcement of his death, Dr. King's death, at one of his own rallies for presidents of the United States. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated by the CIA through the use of a patsy in form of Sirhan Sirhan, whom which they controlled through the program MK Ultra. This was the closing chapter for the dream that was the United States of America. And I just wanted to put this song out there as a reminder that Elvis was at the bottom of his life at this point when he uh, wrote this song. Uh, he was being taken advantage of by promoters. He was about to be locked into a contract that would claim his life, as laid out recently in the movie Elvis, which did a great job. Um, and uh, But when Elvis heard of Bobby Kennedy being assassinated, he wrote this song and performed it the next day. And I think this was the highlight of Elvis Presley's career. Not something that he did for money, not something that he did to benefit himself, but something that came through him organically. And I think, well, it certainly has left a long lasting impression on me. And it's this spirit that I believe Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and to a large extent, John Kennedy, uh, tried to you know put out there when, when they were running. And in this soon to be crazy political season where we're gonna have a Royal Rumble rematch between the Orange Fat Man and Sleepy Joe Biden, I, I want to just remember that in the darkest of times, we can remember the lightest of times. And uh, if we can dream, why we can walk, why we can stand, why we can talk, if we can dream, then the future is ours. I love you, planet Earth. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the crime scene time machine. As always, I'm your host, Scott Roeder. Welcome. You are here because you are interested in the truth. And the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. Okay, what's this episode about today? I wanted to come out and just let you guys know that I was joking. I'm joking. Of course, there was no conspiracy to kill John F. Kennedy. Lee Harvey Oswald was a nut 
a crackpot, a real moron. He got lucky. And uh, there was no conspiracy. I was just joking. The CIA would never hurt a president of the United States or do anything bad ever. Listen, I was joking. And then the second issue, UFOs. Uh, I was also joking about that. There's no aliens in the backyard in Las Vegas. I made it up. I'm an expert in CGI animation, and I was joking. I added that footage in there as a joke because it was a hoax. The whole thing was just a hoax. And uh, anyway, that is the measure of the situation. I love you, everybody out there in crime scene, time machine land. And I uh, also love you, planet Earth. So be good to each other. Love each other. And until next time, bye.